Whoa! Before we get started, I want to go over the four sponsors for this episode who make all this possible. They're fantastic, so go show them some love. The first is the best URL in the industry, Crypto.com. They're a crypto platform with one goal, driving mass adoption. That's why we're all here, right? To get every human on earth a digital wallet and to get them using digital currencies. Crypto.com is helping people do that through buying, earning, lending, and a new card payment. Everything you could want is at Crypto.com. They've been longtime supporters of Off The Chain and recently announced a new exchange. So go help them out, download their app from the App Store, or visit Crypto.com and tell them Pomp sent you. There's nothing better in the world than a company helping to drive global adoption of this new technology. Another part of global adoption is making sure that we secure the various blockchains with computing power. CoinMine has built the best consumer experience in mining, hands down, no competition. If you want to help secure the blockchain and get started in mining, you can go to coinmine.com pomp. Order a CoinMine, it'll arrive at your door, and you simply take it out of the box, plug it in, and connect to your Wi-Fi. You'll be mining your favorite crypto in five minutes or less. It is honestly magical. I have one running right now here in the office, and it's super quiet, it's got no heat, and every person that comes in the office asks, what is that? Every single person asks. It's a coin mine. The best part to me is that the coin mine comes with a mobile app that's super slick, and the company continues to push over-the-air updates to the device that add functionality, add tokens that can be mined, or increase the efficiency of the device. Similar to how Tesla does car software updates over the air, CoinMine's sending these passively to thousands of CoinMines around the world on a periodic basis. Pretty damn cool. When Farboot and the team pitched me on the idea of an Xbox or PlayStation-like box that could mine cryptocurrency in your home, I was immediately sold. I invested in the business, have a device personally, and keep telling people to go to coinmine.com pomp so they can save a lot of time if they want to get started mining today. And CoinMine has a partnership with our third sponsor for this episode, BlockFi. BlockFi is one of my favorite companies in crypto because they allow users to deposit their assets in a deposit account and immediately start earning interest. Think about it. If you keep your digital assets on an exchange or in cold storage, you aren't benefiting from any yield on the asset. With BlockFi, they allow you to deposit crypto and then get paid interest on a monthly basis in crypto. Deposit Bitcoin and want to get your interest payment in ETH? You can do it. Deposit Bitcoin and want to get your interest payment in Bitcoin? You can do it. The rates at BlockFi are currently some of the best in the industry. You can earn 6% interest on Bitcoin and you can earn up to 8.6% APY on GUSD deposits. I'm an investor in the company and think BlockFi is building really important and compelling infrastructure. So go check them out at BlockFi.com pomp. Again, that's BlockFi.com pomp. And that brings us to the last advertiser of the episode, eToro. These guys have absolutely crushed it over the years. Their founder, Yoni, was one of the original Bitcoin OGs and has been ahead of almost every trend in crypto. He built eToro to help people buy, sell, and trade cryptocurrencies, but he added a few twists, social trading, copy trading, and virtual trading accounts. Social trading is a feature where every asset available on the platform has its own separate social feed where people talk about the asset, share trading ideas and analysis, and even include various charts or graphs. Virtual trading accounts is targeted at beginners. If you're just starting out and want to try trading with play money, eToro will give you a virtual account with $100,000 in it to test, learn, and get comfortable. And so, then that brings us to copy trading, which is by far the coolest feature. 
This allows you, as a user, to select any other user's portfolio to copy. If you see someone on the platform you like, you can set your account to mimic their trades. They buy Bitcoin with 5% of their portfolio, your portfolio buys 5% Bitcoin. They sell 50% of their Ether position, your portfolio does the same thing automatically. Copy trading's awesome, so go join the 10 plus million other traders on eToro and start trading all the most popular cryptocurrencies today. They're one of the largest companies in the space, and you can get started by going to eToro.com. Again, that is eToro.com, where the entire team's ready to get you started in just a few clicks. And don't forget, go subscribe to the Off The Chain daily newsletter. You can go to offthechain.substack.com. I write a letter of news, analysis, and opinion every morning that goes out to more than 40,000 investors. See you there. What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. The following conversation is with Mark Yusko, the founder and CEO of Morgan Creek Capital Management and one of my two partners at Morgan Creek Digital. In this conversation, we cover a lot, including his background, what it is like to run a university endowment, the Morgan Creek founding story, how institutional investors think about portfolio construction, how demographics affect financial asset performance, why inflation steals wealth from the poor, how banks take control of your money when you deposit it, the best advice he's ever gotten, why governments help companies manipulate their stock prices, what the benefits of Bitcoin are to institutional investors, and where he expects Bitcoin to go in the future. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you enjoy the 150th episode of Off the Chain. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. This is one of two one-year anniversary episodes that we're going to record. Uh, I'm cheating, and I've brought uh, one of my partners, Mark Yusko, in uh, for this episode. The other episode is with uh, Jason Williams, uh, our third partner. And Mark and I are going to sit here and pretty much talk about everything that we talk about every day. And you guys will all see uh, the intellectual horsepower that he brings. Uh, and hopefully by the end of this, uh, this becomes one of the most popular episodes that we've ever recorded. So thank you so much for coming and doing this. Oh, thanks for having me. I, I am beyond excited. <laughs> and uh, he scared me this morning when he said that he was bringing questions as well. So we'll, uh, we'll hopefully avoid those. Um, all right. So I know you, <laughs> but a lot of people listening might not. Let's start with uh, your personal background and uh, kind of what you did pre-Morgan Creek? Yeah, you know, I, I will go back to go forward, I guess. I, I always say I, I don't do short well, <laughs> so good thing we got a lot of time. Uh, but how far back do you want to go? So I'll go all the way back. You know, I grew up on the left coast, grew up in Seattle, Washington, uh, left there a long time ago, but that's where I grew up. Uh, moved around a lot in high school, went to three high schools, hated my parents. Uh, I have Doesn't everybody. Them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but think about it. I went from Seattle, Washington 
hair down to my shoulders and bell bottoms to Weston, Connecticut. <laughs> had to cut my hair and wear corduroys to Houston, Texas. Had to get a cowboy hat and go to the rodeo. So yeah, it Big was a difference. Yeah. So, but I learned how to be resilient and how to fit in and all that good stuff. Uh, went to Notre Dame for college. Um, went to be an architect for most listeners who have no idea who Mr. Brady is. I wanted to be Mr. Brady from the Brady Bunch. And uh, it was a show about the family, you know, coming together. Uh, he was an architect. I thought it was a cool job. But uh, I lasted one semester in that. <laughs> uh, didn't really like it. Turned out uh, I'm not a subjective person. I need objective things. Um, so changed to electrical engineering. That's what dad wanted me to do. Uh, I didn't love that either. And had a girlfriend who said, well, why don't you do what you like to do? I'm like, well, that's a novel concept. <laughs> Uh, so I, I did that and I did biology and chemistry, thought I wanted to be a doctor, um, graduated pre-med, took the MCATs, bad decision. If you're not going to be a doctor, don't take the MCATs, decide before. Uh, but didn't go to med school, went to business school instead and came out and took the first job offered uh, as an insurance. If I was a resume inflator, I'd say I was an M&A analyst. I'm not a resume inflator, so I was a business analyst. But what did I do? I made spreadsheets, because back then, no one knew how to do spreadsheets, because they had just started existing from VisiCalc to Lotus123. And my boss didn't know how to do spreadsheets, so he said, hey, do spreadsheets. We bought little insurance companies into the bigger insurance company. And uh, fate would have it. I say, my life is a series of happy accidents. Uh, the guy who was doing investments retired. And um, my boss said, hey, you want to do investing? I'm like, great. So we started managing a fixed income portfolio. And what was interesting about that is we did a little bit of both. We ran some of the bonds in-house, so learned about how to do analysis on fixed income. But also we allocated some out and we found went out to search for managers. So I had my first exposure in searching for talent and uh, got lucky, hired Dan Fuss before he was famous, legendary bond manager. Hired another guy, Mike Brilly, up in uh, Minneapolis that no one had ever heard of that had this really cool way of buying bonds that were prepackaged into these deals but were backed by U.S. Treasuries. So you got a big boost in, in yield, even though he had real good security. So we did that. And uh, interestingly, and this kind of goes to my whole history of how I got to Notre Dame, is uh, I got a letter. You know, people are like, what the hell's a letter? Like a physical well, one. A, a letter, like physical letter with a stamp on it. And it was from my alma mater from Notre Dame. It said, we're looking for an assistant investment officer. I'm like, I don't know what that is, but hey, I want to go back to my alma mater. So great. So I applied and uh, went down. I interviewed and uh, came down to me and another guy uh, to work in the investment office at Notre Dame, which was just being started. And uh, turns out the other guy had equity experience. I only had bond experience. And Scott Malpass, who was the CIO at the time, said, I'm going to go with the equity guy. I like disappointed, but I didn't really think too much of it. And I, I had my first experience with everything happens for a reason. There was a reason that happened. And the big reason was for those next two years, Scott really wasn't ready to let people do investment stuff. He just wants someone to build the spreadsheets and the back office, the infrastructure, which I would have hated not being a detail guy. And the new guy, the guy who took the job hated it. And two years later, I had gone to work for an equity manager, was down at Notre Dame, talking to Scott, pitching him our product. And he said, hey, you still interested? And I said, yeah, 
I turned my page uh, paper around and said, yeah, write me an offer. I'll sign it today. <laughs> he unfortunately didn't do that. He actually made me interview again. He made me take a test to make sure I could actually do spreadsheets. And I was a little concerned because we were a year apart at Notre Dame. We live in the same dorm, same major, pre-med. Um, two guys end up in investing. Really? We'll come back to that topic, which is a really important topic. Um, why I think science training is the best training for investing. And... I was nervous about working for someone who's only a year ahead of me and and uh, somebody and he had this great line. He said, don't worry, it's going to be Batman and Batman. I was like, all right, that works for me. And it was great. So I went, uh, spent five years at Notre Dame. And what was great about it is, you know, I'd gone to work for two professors at Northwestern. We ran uh, a value investing style and we had a billion dollars mm -hmm. back when a billion dollars was a lot of money. And these were like the first professors that spun out of the university to manage money. And one of the cool things about it, and it'll come back to when we start talking about technology, is they were using technology in a way that no one had before in investing in that they were running screens of stocks using the VAX computer, the big giant mainframe computer at Northwestern. Mm -hmm. So they're professors during the day, they ran these screens at night, and they had this business on the side that made them way more money than what they got from the professor, uh, from being professors, and they built this great business. And I probably would have stayed there forever. You know, we had a nice little business, the top guys kept all the money, us young guys would have eventually got something. But I wanted to go back to the alma mater. Mm -hmm. And there's this, this story I tell that is true, that Lou Holtz was the coach at Minnesota at the time, football coach. And he had a lifetime contract, unless Notre Dame called. <laughs> Notre Dame called, he went back to, uh, or he went to Notre Dame and had a great career there, 11 years. And I had the same thing. I, I probably would have stayed at Discipline Investment Advisors, but I wanted to go back to Notre Dame. And, and the cool thing, again, things happen for a reason, is I thought investing was all about stocks and bonds. Mm -hmm. It was just about analysis and, and picking stocks and bonds. And when I got to Notre Dame, I realized, geez, that has hardly anything to do with it. Investing is all about the big picture, about asset classes, and about getting out in front of big demographic and secular trends. And that's what we did. And, and we did a bunch of things at Notre Dame that to this day, I, I tell uh, stories about that, you know, were really amazing. I mean, we started looking at international private investing long before other schools. And, and we followed Stanford into some venture capital deals that, that were extraordinary, one being Google. You know, we literally gave this company that no one had heard of at the time called Sequoia. Now everybody knows Sequoia. And Michael Moritz had never done a deal at the time. He was a brand new guy at Sequoia. And uh, we gave him $5 million. They took 10% of that, put it in this little company called Google. And at the time, people were like, Google? It's a stupid name. And why do we need Google? There's 20 search engines. We got Alta Vista. We got Webcrawler, my personal favorite. Uh, why do we need Google? Well, they had better technology that nobody knew at the time. Well, the guys at Google knew, but they didn't of course. know. And, um, you know, the rest of the story is that 500K turned into 200 million, right? There should be a quad at Notre Dame called the Google Quad. And uh, so we did a lot of good stuff, and I learned a lot of great things. Um, but, uh, you know, spent five years there, loved it and then started to get the calls. Mm -hmm. And Jack Meyer had been a mentor. He was at Harvard. Um, I had kind of run into him through some conference stuff, and he decided to take me under his wing. And when the recruiters would call him, say, hey, who should be a CIO? He'd say, hey, call that USCO guy. And uh, it was great, and I appreciated it. And uh, 
Chicago called my other alma mater, my business school alma mater, and uh, interviewed there and, and looked at that. But then North Carolina called and I said to my wife, there's a job in North Carolina, I should take it. <laughs> I said, don't you want to know what it is? She said, no, I just want to live in North Carolina. And she was right. And uh, so we moved down there sight unseen. And the real thing about North Carolina was it was broken. Right? If I had gone to University of Chicago, Chicago was good school, had a good board, had a good portfolio, good performance. The great thing about going to North Carolina, it was totally broken. 84th percentile in performance. They had like 11 managers. They had no diversification. It was managed by a board of 11 guys. No, all guys. Okay. And nine of them from the same fraternity. Mm-hmm. Now, so this is, uh, what, 97? 97, 98, yeah. Right, you go and take over the endowment at uh, University of North Carolina. Yes. And this board, go ahead and explain no, no, more about I mean, about think them. about it. So we all know that diversity of thought is a good thing and, and new ideas is a good thing. But they had nine guys from the same fraternity, all roughly the same age, you know, no diversity on the board at all. And they would get together three or four times a year for a football game or basketball game and they would try to time the market great strategy right yeah great and the technical term is they stunk yeah uh in fact they stunk so badly that the guy right across the street behind us uh julian robertson had stepped off the board and said guys you are terrible at this so just give me five percent of the endowment and i'll manage it and do do great things he actually turned that five into 17 more on that later um but they they really needed help and so the chancellor at the time michael hooker one of the most visionary guys i've ever met said uh come to north carolina help us build this and i use the basketball analogy mm-hmm. since it's you know the mecca of college basketball uh i got there the first year and everything reverse tomahawk slams Everything we did looked like a genius. Now, not because we were doing anything smart, but just because things were, were really broken. Second year layups, third year free throws, fourth year had to take a jump shot. It wasn't until the fifth year we had to take a three-pointer. Mm-hmm. So we went from basically me to a team of eight investment professionals over the course of seven years, uh, built out the back office. We actually spun ourselves out of the university into a private management company and uh, did some fun things. For for those that don't understand, explain uh, the difference between having the endowment inside of the school versus the management company outside it, because a lot of schools have have kind of pivoted to that model and just what the difference is. Yeah, it's it's an important difference. One of the funny things, so I get down to North Carolina and, you know, we start to do things like, in, introduce an investment policy. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you're laughing. They, they didn't have an investment policy statement. I'm laughing because I know this story and it's fantastic. Yeah, so no, you have to I, tell the whole story. Yeah, okay. So the crazy thing is, so I come in and I will admit I was a little raw. I was young. Mm-hmm. I was 34 years old and I didn't really understand politics. And so the first thing I did is I did my first hundred days report, mm-hmm. you know, like the president does. And uh, I said, here are 40, you know, recommendations. Now, what I should have said was 40 observations because recommendation implies that they were doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. So they took it negatively. So I got a little chastised for that. Um, But the second thing I did is I introduced this idea of an investment policy. You know, again, not a novel concept and everyone had one. And so I started January 1998, uh, all through 99, you know, things were going well. We were super long, super strong, uh, super concentrated in small caps and international, and we crushed it. And what people forget 
is back in the fourth quarter of 99, the Fed actually put half a trillion back when half a trillion was a lot of money Mm -hmm. uh, into the economy to try to ward off Y2K. Mm -hmm. Everybody was afraid that literally the world was going to shut down on December 31st, 1999. Um, And so we did really, really well. And we got really overweight domestic equity, international equity, small caps. And so I go into the board in February of 2000 and... um, we had this board meeting and a lot of things were happening. One, stocks were super overvalued and the forward projected returns looked really unattractive. Mm-hmm. And I, I showed this chart from GMO, Grantham Mayo Van Arderloo, and it showed that the expected return for US stocks for the next decade was minus 1.9. And my board chair said, Mark, that's impossible. That could never happen. And in fact, you're not allowed to use the letters G, M, or O in a sentence ever again, <laughs> because this guy's always wrong and he's going to be wrong. And I said, All right, okay, fine, fine. But our policy says that we're super overweight invest, uh, U.S. stocks. We need to trim back to the policy guidelines. But basically, what you're talking about is there's an investment policy that had certain targets of asset yeah. allocation, and you had made investments. They'd grown so large that they had gone outside of those boundaries. Yep. If you follow the policy, you Time rebalance. To rebalance. <laughs> yeah. But if, uh, if you are going to meet up with your buddies and make stock picks, then keep doing what you're, what's Just working. Keep what's working. Right? And, yeah. and the thing is, no one likes to rebalance. Yep. Everybody likes to think trees are going to grow the sky and what's going to work yesterday is going to work tomorrow. And we actually know in hindsight, that's not the way it works. Of course. And you should definitely rebound. So I, I go into this board meeting and say, hey, it's time to rebound. Said, are you kidding? These are our best managers. Why would we take money away from them? I said, because that's the policy. That's the discipline. And they're like, you know what? We don't like this word policy. You, you introduced this idea of policy. We're the board. So I want you to change that word to, from policy to guideline. So I had to literally go to the lawyers and change it to investment guidelines. <laughs> so another meeting in May. And now uh, I said, you can't do anything. So in May, the market started to roll over in March, starting to go down a little bit. The tech wreck was just starting. And they're like, all right, fine. You can go to the top end of the new guidelines, but no more. Because these are our best managers. No way we can take any money away from them. And uh, I come back in September and they're like, get this shit out of here. Yep. <laughs> and oh yeah, change that word back to policy. <laughs> and like, okay, good. So now they got it. And and we went on to do a lot more active rebalancing and, and a lot more discipline. And in fact, over the next um, couple uh, quarters, we rebalanced the portfolio from long and strong to very hedged. Because mm-hmm. by the middle of 2000, end of 2000, into the first part of 2001, we we're starting to come up on a recession. People didn't really see it coming, actually kind of like now. Mm-hmm. And uh, we said that it was time for uh, getting hedged. And so I go to the board meeting, I said, all right, we want to we add hedge funds. Like, well, that that's going to be a problem. I said, well, why is that? He said, well, we banned hedge funds. Said, what do you mean you banned hedge funds? Well, back in 1996, Julian Robertson and again, had taken the assets from the portfolio and he had grown them to a really big weighting, but he had a bad year in 1996. He was down 9%. The market was up a few percent. And Businessweek wrote this article called The Fall of the Wizard. And it basically said that Julian was washed up. He, he'd never be good again. He was up 100% the next 12 months. But, you know, who's counting? And uh, 
So uh, I said, well, that seems like a really bad plan, but okay, fine, no hedge funds. So we'll have no hedge funds. We'll have opportunistic equity, long, short equity, enhanced fixed income, and absolute return. And the chancellor looks at me and says, that's just nomenclature, right? I said, yeah. He says, good, as long as we're clear. And so we did go to 60, 60% in those four strategies over the next 12 months. And from 2000 to 2002, the markets fell almost 60%. Average endowment lost 25% of their money, and we were flat. Mm -hmm. Now I say, I'm never going to break my arm, pat myself on the back for not making money. But flat was good when the rest of the world was down a lot. Mm -hmm. And it taught me the the value of discipline, following your policy, the value of hedging, the value of of not really focusing on past performance, but focusing on what's gonna happen in the future, and and really focusing on talent. Because at the end of the day, what we were doing is we were concentrating the portfolio in the most talented people. Mm -hmm. And it worked out really well. And because of that, in 2002, I got approached by a couple wealthy families that hadn't done as well during the, the downdraft. And, and they said, hey, come be our CIO. I said, well, that's interesting, but I'm not sure I want to work for just one family. But hey, I could create a business that could manage money for lots of families. And so we set out to do that. And we had this idea to create this this company. Uh, came up with lots of names, and all the good names were taken. All the birds of prey, all the big cats, um, everything was taken. So a uh, lawyer finally said, hey, if you name it after a physical place, then you can use it. I said, all right, well, I live on Morgan Creek, so what about <laughs> Morgan Creek? And uh, you know, my house was back up to Morgan Creek, and Morgan Creek runs through the middle of Chapel Hill. It's actually the creek that James Taylor grew up on with his family when his dad was the dean of the medical school, and the song Copper Line is all about Morgan Creek. So if you look at our card and our logo, it has a little copper line through it, a little nod to JT. And uh, so we we decided to leave, or I decided to leave, so I, I went with these two families who set up Morgan Creek, and the idea was to bring the endowment model of investing to families, high net worth individuals, smaller institutions that didn't have staff and resources. Explain what the endowment model is for those yep. that don't know. Yep. So the endowment model of investing is, is really pretty simple. Uh, it's, it's a model that, that says if you think about investing, there's only four ways you can make money, right? They all require you to take risk. So you can take credit risk, you can buy a bond and a bond you know, if they don't pay you back, you can sue them. So it's a contractual claim. So you don't make a lot of money for bonds above risk-free. Then you can take equity risk, so stocks and hedge funds. Um, the idea is you you get paid more for that because it's a contingent claim. Uh, you only get paid if the bondholders get paid first. And then you can take illiquidity risk, so private equity, private real estate, private energy, private debt, and you get paid more for illiquidity because you're willing to lock your money up for some period of time. And then there's structure, which is just a fancy term for leverage or, or derivative structure. And what the endowments figured out was uh, bonds really aren't going to work for me because I need to make 5% real meaning 5% above inflation to pay my spending. So I need to take more risk to, to achieve that. If I'm only make 2% real in bonds, that's not gonna work. So I'm gonna have less allocation of bonds. I'm gonna have more allocation to equities, long-term equities. But then within equities, there's all kinds of equity, right? There's private equity, there's real estate equity, there's commodity equity, there's stock equity. So I'm gonna take advantage of this illiquidity premium. And that means I'm gonna have a high weight in private investments. And then I'm also gonna have a value bias. 
and I'm going to have discipline. I'm going to follow this policy. So all of these things are what the Yale model and the endowment model were all about. And if you look over the last 20 years at that time, the endowments and foundations had outperformed everybody by a wide margin. We're talking three, 400 basis points per year compounded for 20 years, which is a lot of return. And it was really from the simple having a policy, having discipline, focusing on talent, focusing on illiquidity premium. And, and then the last thing, and we'll probably talk about this more later, is, is this idea that innovation as an asset class is really important and that always backing innovation back, like when we've backed Google at Notre Dame or other companies that, that did interesting things. My, one of my favorite stories about that is there's this great story about a company called Sienna. And uh, back during the recession in 01, this guy gets laid off from Bell Labs and he says, hey, can I take my project with me? And then people are like, I, I don't know what you're working on, you know, Okay, fine, take it. Knock yourself out. And uh, yeah, knock yourself out. And so he takes it and no one would back him. And uh, he, he had this idea that he was gonna shine light through a prism and that that would break the light into multiple colors and each color of light should, in theory, be able to transmit the same amount of data as white light. So fiber optic cable could be expanded without having to add more cables. And uh, no one believed him except this retired school teacher who gave him $300,000, which was probably her life savings. Now, the cool thing is it turned into $300 million for mm -hmm. her. So that's cool. Um, but he created this company, which went on to change the way information flowed around the world because you could now increase the capacity of fiber optics. But that was innovation, right? That was thinking differently or thinking, not even thinking like out of the box, but thinking like there is no box, mm -hmm. coming up with a whole different way of, of uh, attacking a problem. So this endowment model uh, and this way of thinking, be a value investor, really uh, resonated with a lot of families. We grew the business. Um, the term outsource CIO really didn't exist. In fact, I, we might have even coined it in our original presentation, OCIO. Um, but we did something that in hindsight was dumb. Um, we picked a good business, but a bad business model. All right, so first let's talk about what the business itself, so the OCIO model, explain the difference between uh, when you're an endowment CIO, you basically manage the capital that yep. the endowment has itself. When you get approached by these families, the initial pitch is basically come work for us, right? Yep. Come run our investment arm. Yep. So you are uh, working for a single pool of capital. The OCIO model is doing variation of that, yep. but now you're doing it for multiple pools of capital simultaneously. Yep. Right. And and before I actually, I'll actually answer the original question you asked me, which I do all the time. You ask a question and I'll just go down some rabbit hole. But you asked the question about why was it important that we spun out of the university? And this is, this is an important question in the sense that universities for years were run by teams of people internally. Most of them were kind of pretend CIOs. They were like the accounting office that started to do it or, or back at Notre Dame before Scott and I got there, it was literally a priest who once a year, he would go to New York and whoever bought him the nicest dinner, he would allocate them some money and, <laughs> and that's how he did it. And he was a nice guy, and um, but he wasn't an investment professional. And uh, the problem is- He's a steak expert. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's a steak expert. And at a play, you know, he, he was good at Broadway. And um, I said, really nice guy. The funny thing is he actually got the job, his greatest title ever, as procreator general <laughs> at the Vatican, which is like the top finance guy at the yeah. Vatican. Interesting name. Um, but what's interesting about it is, uh, 
if you think about the pay scale at a public university or any university, it's pretty low. Mm. And so you're not going to attract the best talent. Mm. And so you're doing the best with what you can. And so there are two ways you can can fix it. One is you can allow people to consult, like a med school prof that you know sees patients on Fridays or a dental school prof that drills teeth on Wednesdays. So one of the things they did for me is they said, okay, you can consult, right? You can we'll pay you, you know, our, your salary, but then you can consult to wealthy families. And I did that, and it supplemented my income, which was nice. Um, but the second thing is, I, I when I went to hire my first guy, it's amazing. So I found this this guy, and he was a Moorhead scholar, which is the top scholarship at uh, UNC. We'll probably talk more about that kind of stuff later. But uh, he was amazing, right? He was being recruited by Goldman Sachs. You know, he had been voted Greek Man of the Year. I mean, really impressive guy, top of his class. And uh, I wanted to hire him. And he was willing to stay and work for us for 35K instead of 50. And you can this back in 1998. And uh if, because his girlfriend was a year behind and still at, at school. And I go to the university and say, okay, I want to hire this guy. And I said, well, you don't have that position. I said, what do you mean? I said, well, I, I just want an analyst. And I said, well, you know, what do you mean? I said, well, an analyst, an investment analyst. So, well, you don't have that position. I said, well, okay, but the state, you know, has an investment management firm and they've got that position and I could just borrow their um, position description from the state files because you had to do everything through the state because we're state university. And they said, well, they manage money. I'm like, well, what the heck is our billion dollars? <laughs> like, well, but you don't physically manage. I'm like, oh, we allocate to other people and they manage, but we're still managing money. Make a long story short, they uh, wouldn't assent. They said, you could pay them $22,000. I said, but I won't get them for $22,000. I need thirty-five. dollars said, sorry. So the, the attorney, you know, the guy who helped me with the guidelines thing, said, hey, you know, there's this thing. If you hire someone uh, as a consultant, then you can pay them whatever. So we literally had to sell him to a temp services agency and then rent him back. <laughs> and we paid 35 plus 15%. So we ended up paying 15% that we shouldn't have, but we were able to hire him. And so getting talent is really important. And what Yale and, and Harvard, and, and Harvard's the, the epitome of it, is they spun the whole organization into a management company and it allowed them to attract the best talent. So we followed suit and Duke had done it. And if Duke does, then Carolina's got to do it. And uh, so we spun into a management company and uh, it allowed us to hire better talent. So the same thing in, in terms of forming Morgan Creek is, is we knew that we wanted to have this investment company structure that would be then uh, a resource to multiple families or institutions. And so like when I said Michael Hooker, who was the chancellor at UNC, was a visionary, the reason he got me to come to North Carolina was he said, hey, I have this idea. We could we could manage money for UNC Chapel Hill. Then we could manage money for all the other schools in the UNC system. Then we could manage money for other public universities around the country. Heck, then we could manage money for you know the alumni. We could create mutual funds and, and then we could take it public. I'm like, that is a guy I want to hitch my cart to or horse cart to his horse. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away two years after I got there unexpectedly from cancer. And uh, the board never really bought into his vision. They're like, well, we don't want to share. Like it's not sharing. If we manage other people's money and we charge a fee, then we have more resources, then we can hire better talent, then you get better performance. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, but they didn't see it that way. So I moved into this model where I could say, all right, we're gonna build a resource, a management company, and I brought 
most of my team from Carolina, hired a couple of the guys that had my eye on, and I said, all right, we're gonna build a shared resource, an outsourced resource. So you could hire us uh, to be your team, and for the price of maybe one person, you could get a whole organization and a better team. And it was a way of building access to talent in a way that they really hadn't been done before. So um, it was great. And the mistake we made though in the business uh, model was the model we chose OCIO, outsource CIO, doesn't scale. It's a great business, bad business model because if you say I'm an outsourced investment office and you're gonna have account reps, like I have 10 people I serve and you have 10 people you serve. The problem was every time I'd say, okay, Mike's gonna be your person, they say, no, it says, oh, CIO, you're the CIO, I need to see you. Well, I can only see like 15 people, so we, we capped our growth. Mm-hmm. Whereas other firms like Cambridge Associates and Northern Trust figured out if we have more equal based people, you know, senior investment people, but not the CIO, then we can have lots of people have 10 people. And we can scale to hundreds or even thousands. Because it basically comes out of what people think they're buying, right? They, yeah. Are they buying an office? Are they buying the CIO? Are they buying yeah. some other resource? And it's almost like you did such a good job selling them on this. You're buying the outsourced CIO yeah. that they said, well, where is he? <laughs> yeah, where's the guy? <laughs> show, have him show up. And, sure. uh, and look, it was a great run and, and we, we really enjoyed it. We still have, you know, some of that, that business today, 15 years later. Later, hard to believe it's been 15 years, but uh, more Creek just turned 15. Just turned 15. We just <laughs> celebrated our 15th anniversary, which was pretty cool. Absolutely. Um, all right. So you do the OCIO stuff. Obviously, you start to realize, uh, hey, this is great. But um, I, I want you to tell a story about uh, how you get from the OCIO model to uh, more of kind of a dedicated fund model. Yep. And uh, some of the challenges of tracking down wealthy people. <laughs> oh no, that is great. So you know, we we start with these these handful of families and, and they grew that to, to a number of families. Um, but we launched in, in July of 2004 and September, uh, October, no, November, that's when Thanksgiving is, November of 2004, uh, literally we're trying to get a deal done for a million dollar investment in an energy fund. And we had to track down the patriarch of this one family on a yacht in the Mediterranean, trying to use faxes and ship to shore radio and realize this is stupid, right? So we need to have a vehicle where we have discretion. Because one of the challenges of investing with talent, you know, the best hedge fund managers, the best venture capital managers, when they give you access, you have to take it. You don't have time to go, you know, touch everybody and ask, you know, do you want this or not want this? Because you have to then educate, this is really is the best person. You know, when Blue Ridge opens up, they got a small window, you need to grab that that capacity. And so uh, we said, all right, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna create these commingled vehicles. And so for hedge funds, for private investments, for venture capital, real estate, we're gonna create these commingled pools and all the families are gonna participate in those. If you still wanna have custom hedge funds or custom uh, ind- individual funds fine but the bulk of the exposure's got to be in these commingled vehicles. So we set up, you know, Morgan Creek Partners to do private investments, we set up um, the opportunity fund to do hedge funds, we set an absolute return fund, and we did these commingled vehicles or fund of funds. I like to call them manager of managers because we were actually managing the portfolios. And we had a unique model in that 75% of the money was with external managers. 
25% was with co-investments. And we would co-invest in deals or in individual ideas side by side with the managers. And that turned out to work really, really well. And so over time, some of our biggest investors said, hey, we love what you do in fund of funds but what we really love is this idea of co-investing and so we created co-investment vehicles in fact you know you and I met through through a co-investment that we'll probably talk about later and what was interesting is uh, at first, people were resistant, right? Because they felt that they were going to lose control. You know, they wanted to make individual decisions. And what we got them to realize is it wasn't the individual decision of whether you're in manager A, B, or C. It was, are you moving into energy at the right time? Are you moving out of stocks at the right time? Are you moving into venture capital at the right time? Are you going into tech or healthcare? And so once they got comfortable with that, and once they had a relationship that they felt comfortable with, uh, we moved them towards that business. But it was really this idea of, of accessing talent. And I say all the time that you know, I literally, for most of my career, you know, 30 plus years, I had the best job in the world. I get paid to go around the world and talk to the smartest people in the world about investing. How awesome is that? I mean, literally, I've talked to Nobel laureates. I've talked to you know some of the greatest investors of all time. I've been mentored by some of the greatest investors of all time, like Julian across the street. You know, what a blessing to spend you know a decade or more with that guy. I could go see him anytime I wanted. Uh, he would give me ideas. He would give me uh, you know philosophy, and he'd give me instruction. He'd tell me when I was wrong. Um, but you learn so much by going out and interacting with really talented people. And it's also pattern recognition mm -hmm. because if you don't see everybody in the business, then you don't know what's good and what's bad. In fact, a, a good story about that, one you might not have even heard. I don't know. I've, you've heard most of my stories, but this one, is, <laughs> this one might be unique. So the first family that hired us, one of the challenges they had is, is they had a really bad experience in private investments. Well, the reason is, very simply is back in 2000, right before they hired us, they had met with 34 private equity groups and they had hired 17 of them. Now, they committed three deadly sins in investing. And I'll, I'll ask you, which one was the worst? All right. So was the worst that they only met with 34? Okay, because there were actually 450 in the market that year, but they met the 34 that Credit Suisse and Merrill Lynch brought to them because those are their you know marketing people. Or was this the worst sin that they had hired more than 50%, where you should really only hire kind of one, two, three percent of the people you see? Or was the fact that the 34 they saw were all tech because tech had done great, 96, 97, 98, 99. So I'm going to go with option three as the big mistake. Yeah, it's a big mistake. Very big mistake. And, 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 you know, I wouldn't tell the story if it didn't have the ending I want, which is, yeah, it didn't work out. And it made them realize that, one, they needed someone to help them understand that you shouldn't chase the hot dot. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't just go with what's been good. You've got to actually look. I say all the time, the best performance comes from people who have a great long-term track record mm -hmm. who've just gotten their just gotten their butt kicked mm. and they just had a really tough period mm. and that's when you want to buy them and uh well what you're talking about there's two pieces here so one is uh if you were to ask many great venture capitalists etc you know would you rather bet on the team 
on a specific company product or the market. They're like, look, a great team is actually really advantageous uh, and kind of that talent you're talking about. But if you invest in the right market, you can actually invest with a bad team and the tailwinds will take care of a lot yeah. of the, the faults, right? It'll kind of cover yeah. that up. If you invest with a great team in a horrible market, good luck, yep. right? Even the best teams in the world, yep. just if there's not customers or if there's not whatever. And so it, it's similar to the asset allocation of, are you in the right assets? Yes, you still have to go do the work on the managers and, and the right strategies, et cetera. But a good portion of it is just simply in the right assets or in, in direct investing in private, just actually in the right markets. Look, being in the right place at the right time is is everything in investing. And, mm. and I do think that that founders and teams can make a big difference and the talent ultimately wins. And we'll, I'm sure we'll talk more about that. But to your point, you know, when I first got to UNC in 98, literally my first board meeting, right? I've been there seven days. <laughs> I go to a board meeting. And at the time, there was this famous cover of The Economist magazine. Mm-hmm. And it basically said, the world awash in oil. And it was a picture of these oil guys on the front trying to stop a, a geyser, a gusher from, from flowing. And they were covered in oil. And, and in the article, it said that oil, oil was about 11 bucks at the time. It said oil was going to $5. And it actually had a line saying, someday oil might be free. <laughs> okay. So I go in. And again, we just had our new policy uh, implemented and, you know, uh, I'm saying, okay, with our new policy, put a 5% target to energy and natural resources. We have zero. And I want to give 1% to this firm called Natural Gas Partners, even though they really did more oil and gas. There was three guys trained by Richard Rainwater, one of the famous investors of all time uh, out of Texas. And uh, I, I make the pitch and, and the board chair says, Mark, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. But if you really want to do it, okay. And I'm like, great, awesome, okay. And uh, rest of the meeting goes on, calls me in the chancellor's office after the meeting, and he says, Mark, when I say that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard, that's what I meant. The rest of the stuff was just to be nice in front of all the people because we knew it. <laughs> and um, uh, the chancellor says, well, Max, right? I mean, if we're not going to take his ideas, we should just fire him right now. But if we're going to take his ideas, which I think we should try at least, I mean, we just brought him down here, you know, maybe we should try a couple ideas. Then if they don't work out, we can fire him. I'm like, guys, I'm sitting right here. <laughs> I want uh, day I'll seven. Talk about firing is not, not interesting to me. Um, what's interesting is they did let us put 5% in energy, and that 5% in energy generated 25%. Mm-hmm. of UNC's returns the next decade. Mm-hmm. Again, not because I'm a genius, mm-hmm. but because we were in the right place, right time. We partnered with great people, Merit, Merit Energy Partners and Natural Gas Partners and a few others. But to your point, it was really about being in the right asset. Um, and, and I also think not only is it the right asset class, right market type stuff, but uh, one of my favorite sayings that you have is about uh, timing, right? Yeah. And this idea of uh, people buying and, and selling things maybe when they shouldn't. So oh. maybe go over a little bit of, uh, of your well, framework I mean, there. it's everything to to what we talked about up to this point on on uh, you know the board right is there's this great piece um, by Barton Biggs that he wrote two pages he was a famous strategist for Morgan Stanley and he wrote this thing called group stink and it's the best two pages I think I've ever read about the psychology of investing and and why there's there's truth in this idea that an investment committee should be made up of an odd number of members and three is too many. 
So groups don't make good decisions. Groups, particularly boards, make really bad decisions. And why is that? It's not because they're not smart people. They're incredibly smart people. That's why they get it to be on the board. But once you get on the board, what's the most important thing? Stay. To stay on the board. And so what you do is you you make decisions that are are homogeneous and that aren't controversial. And so I used to keep track and and uh, when we would recommend stuff to the board, about 95% of the time they would approve it. And the 5% that they didn't approve were by far our best ideas. Mm. And that's not a criticism of them or saying we're geniuses and they're idiots. No, 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 just the opposite. It's we were kind of being idiots at the time because we were really pushing the envelope and the things that sound the craziest at the time, the things you get the most pushback are usually the best ideas because they're really pushing the boundary or the edge of, of the opportunity. And so when my board chair says, Mark, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Well, that's the trigger. Ding, 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 ding. That They do ring a bell when it's time to go because when everybody's telling you that something is terrible that's why one thing i love about twitter right is i can put an idea out there and i get instantaneous vitriol or hatred i'm like oh that's a good idea if everybody says oh mark that's the greatest thing ever geez okay that's already in the market hmm. and so well and a lot of it's coming from just it's probably something that's either controversial or pushing the edge is something that not a lot of other people are thinking about or doing and yeah. so if you're able to do something that other people aren't doing and it's right that's where a lot of the returns end up being anyways oh come on it's, it's my pin tweet right yeah, the greatest wealth is created by investing in something that you believe in mm -hmm. before people even understand it mm -hmm. and that has been true forever mm -hmm. right from the early days of when you know the idea of, of carried interest was started you know Queen Isabella sends Christopher Columbus off with these ships and and uh, she says I want I want carried interest well let's think about that for a second 20% of profits care the stuff they carried back in the ships she got 20% of so she was a venture capitalist and no one thinks about her as a venture capitalist and you know the, actually it even goes back further than Queen Isabella in that um, if you go to Greece, where I know you were last summer, um, and you go down the peninsula, uh, there's a very thin point um, where, um, I forget which, the Corinthians built a track, seven miles long, uh, the, the narrowest point. And if you went down around the Panopoly, I can never pronounce, forget how to pronounce it, but when you were sailing back then, back in uh, the early days, it was really treacherous. And so literally people would pull into port and they'd load up the boat on this track and the slaves would push it across mm -hmm. the isthmus and you get to the other side and you'd be safe. Well, there was a carried interest, meaning they took a percentage of what you had in the boat, probably made it lighter too. Um, and so that idea of, of sharing the wealth came from an idea that no one had, had really thought about, or again, thinking outside the box. But in terms of investing and timing, um, it's, it's definitely clear that the best investment ideas are the ones that are the least popular. Well, and, I think the, the one saying that you say all the time that uh, it cracks me up because it's so true is uh, about people basically buying the things that they should have yeah, bought yeah. and then selling the things that they need. Uh, come on. I mean, it, it's so easy uh, to do what everyone else is doing. And when is it easy to do what everyone else is doing? Well, after something's gone up. So human beings do two things 
really, really well. One, to your point, is they buy what they wish they would have bought. And we're spectacular at it. And it's true of everything. It's true of fads, right? You know, people buy the hot piece of clothing right at the end of its life, not at the beginning when people would say it looks stupid and then it doesn't have a good useful life or they buy an investment after it's already gone up. You know, back in 2000, uh, we set the all time record for uh, money flowing into tech stocks in three months, January, February and March of 2000. Not in 1980, right, when the cover of Business Week said the death of equities and stocks were super cheap and you could have bought all the equities uh, in the United States twice with all the gold in the world. No, nobody bought stocks then. They waited 20 plus years until they had gone up and they had gone up a lot and people piled in and bought Cisco at, at crazy prices and then watched it fall 90 plus percent. And so... Human beings are spectacular buying what they wish they would have bought. But the second thing they do, which is equally bad, is they sell what they're about to need. <laughs> and so, you know, you look at, at, let's take energy right now. Energy stocks are on their ass. Everything is, is everyone you know, hates energy and you know, electric cars are going to be, you know, the next, yeah, great. In 20 years, it's going to take a long time to get rid of the in, in, internal combustion engine. Um, even if we should get rid of it faster, it's just going to take a long time. And so oil is going to be with us for a long time. And there are a lot of oil companies that have just gotten obliterated and everybody's flowing into FANG. And I say, you know, right now you should be selling FANG, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. You should be buying FANG, Diamondback Energy, because nobody wants to own it. Uh, same thing with hedge funds. You know, hedge funds have underperformed during the QE era. They've had a horrible performance because it's tough to short stocks because the idea of shorting is you're supposed to sell short companies that are bad. And usually, companies that are bad go out of business. But if you artificially suppress interest rates and make money free and allow companies that have no business borrowing money to continue to borrow money to stay alive, then shorting stocks is really hard. And so hedge funds have struggled, but right now we're at the precipice of, of a really tough period in markets where you're gonna wish you were hedged. Mm -hmm. And it's just like back in 99, 2000, 2001, when I was at UNC and telling them they need to get hedged, they're like, no, I want to give money to Tom Marsico because he's been up. Like, mm -hmm. well, right. And the well, fact I think part of it is it goes back to, you know, when you're sitting there, you're saying, look, equities over the next 10 years, you know, negative 1.9%. And they're saying that's impossible. impossible. Right. It, it is uh, humans are um, very uh, revisionist in history. Right. In terms of when they look back, it's of course, this is going to continue. Yep. Right. And they will even say things like, well, it won't continue forever, but it's going to continue for the next five years or the next 10 years. Right. It, it, it's this um, that the market shift or I think, you know, Ray Dalio recently wrote this thing about paradigm shifts yeah. where yep. timing those are really difficult, but actually uh, kind of looking around the room is a great signal as to when maybe I should be thinking differently than everyone else in this room because they are so excited that if everyone is excited, it may pay to actually not be as excited as they are. Yeah, it's really interesting too because um, you hit on a really important point and it's subtle that, that people don't think about is Doing the opposite of everybody else all the time is a really bad strategy, mm -hmm. right? And Soros has a great quote about this, is that the trend actually is your friend. The only time it's not is at inflection points. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's interesting is um, you don't want to just resist 
the the market movements or the or the trend or you know whether it's a, a secular move or a cyclical move just to be contrarian so being a contrarian for a contrarian sake is is a dangerous strategy but what's really important is is the subtle point you said is when you're looking around the room and suddenly everybody is leaning one way or everybody's on one side of the boat that's when it starts to pay to start walking towards the other side mm-hmm. not necessarily right away um, but pretty quickly and making those decisions at inflection points. And, and people say, well, how do you know when there's a reflection point? Well, inflection points are really cool in the sense that they advertise themselves. It's, it's like a phase shift uh, back to you know chemistry. It's like a phase shift um, between water and ice or you know water and steam is what happens is right before that shift, the atoms start to vibrate very rapidly. And the same thing happens in markets. Markets have low volatility during a trend. And then what happens is they start to have really high volatility. So if you look at, you know, just take last week in the equity markets, we were up 3%, up down 1%, up 2%, down 2%. And that volatility tends to spike right as things are about to shift or change. For those that uh, are only used to the crypto markets, those are big movements in the equity world. Yeah, In, exactly. in crypto, that's like an hour. But, yeah, yeah, exactly. But huge deal in the uh, in the equity markets um so so another piece of this i guess is uh you you said it you don't necessarily need to shift immediately right so when you kind of get that uh, the gyration of the markets or the volatility uh the other thing that i see a lot of people especially right now given that there's some people yelling and screaming saying hey there's some gyration going on is you don't have to go from long to immediately 100% short. Oh, right. Right. There's an element of uh, making a move to cash, for example, is actually a decision. It it is an investment, right? And what you're doing is you're basically taking risk off and you are not necessarily betting on the inflection point, but what you're doing is you're you're hedging yourself to some degree. And when something does happen, right, let's say the markets do roll over, the people who have done that have actually positioned themselves the best because they're the ones who have all the liquidity and can buy when everyone else is selling. Again, such a, a, a an important point. And you know, if you think about the greatest investors of all time, they are very judicious in their use of cash and they don't view cash as not an investment. You know, the industry has gone to this point about, you know, unless you're fully invested, you're not a real investor. Well, no, that that's silly. Cash is an investment. It's a choice to, to your point. And, and being short, uh, is a really tough business. You know, shorting companies, uh, John Griffin, who ran ran uh, the famous hedge fund Blue Ridge, described it best. Uh, it's like playing chess. You know, if you try to short during the opening, you know, three phases of a chess game, the opening, the middle game, and the end game. If you try to short in the opening, it's just a waste of time because you have no idea. You and I start a chess game. No, you have no idea who's the better player at mm-hmm. the beginning. It's just a waste of time. In the middle game, where the, the strategy is coming and, and the, the, the big moves are being made, that's when it can just be lethal mm-hmm. because it can go against you really badly. It's only in the end game, right? Where you know who's gonna win mm-hmm. uh, when you want a short. And so you do get you get signals mm-hmm. in inequities uh, as to when that that uh, end game is occurring, and I'm sure we'll talk at some point about Tesla and all and all that. <laughs> but uh, uh, I think about this all the time in that if you if you think about cash, uh, I even have a hashtag for it: cash is king. That uh, hashtags, by the way, um, cash is king in that 
the reason it's king is it has very high option value. Mm-hmm. And you know, somebody, I can't remember who it was, it'd be better if I could remember and give them credit, but they call it um, market valium because it takes the stress out. You know, if you're fully invested or fully short, you have stress, right? And if it goes against you, you're, you might make bad decisions because, you know, you're, you're trying to, um, you're trying to stop the bad things from happening to your portfolio. Whereas in cash, you just get the ability to sit back and watch and observe. And then to your point, when you have liquidity, mm-hmm. when no one else does, you win. Mm-hmm. I mean, think back it's to- It's the kill shot. Pardon? It really is. It's the kill shot it is right? the kill in markets shot. where yeah. if nobody else has liquidity and there's a liquidity crunch and you're the one sitting there with liquidity, you dictate. Well, you, you, not only do you dictate, you get to buy all the best assets because no one else can buy them and you can. Uh, they're at the perfect price, uh, a huge margin of safety. Uh, you get all the upside and, and you also get flexibility in how you structure. You know, it's kind of like, um, you know, after the, the global financial crisis, you know, who was there with lots of cash and he didn't even buy stock. He bought convertible bonds, you know, Warren Buffett, um, because he got the first call. And why did he get the first call? Well, who had enough cash to bail out Bank of America or Goldman Sachs or, you know, any numerous other deals that he did. And it's funny, the people who have bailed out the government or bailed out banks, they always are the wealthiest with lots of liquidity. Oh, come on. I mean, one of my favorite stories, right, is you, you go back to, you know, the last time the banks were threatened, okay, 1907, um, you had this thing called the Knickerbocker Panic. And what was the Knickerbocker Panic? Well, the trust companies were trying to create alternatives to banks. And there's this guy, J.P. Morgan, you might have heard of him. Um, he didn't like that so much because he was the banks. And uh, he basically started a rumor that some of these trust companies were were uh, insolvent and that you better get your money out fast. So he literally triggered a bank run, the Knickerbocker Panic of 1907. And these trust companies all started to falter. And magically, he and John D. Rockefeller, one of his good friends, um, were able to pick them up at a, at a very bargain basement price and get rid of the competition. And, uh, you know, then they went even further. And it turns out John D. Rockefeller's dad or father-in-law uh, was uh, Avery Aldrich. And they came up with this plan to create the Federal Reserve Bank. And it took them four years from 1909 to 1913 to actually get it passed. Uh, they call it the Jekyll uh, or the monster of Jekyll Island for a reason. One of the worst things that ever happened, but uh, unless you're a banker, because it was created basically to keep the bankers rich, mm-hmm. and it's done a really good job at that. And um, but when you have liquidity, right? When you can write a twenty-five million dollar check, when that's a lot of money uh, back then to save the banking system, uh, so to speak. Even though you created its demise in the first place, um, but it's it's, it's like, what is it? The the arsonist who sets the fire and then shows up as a fireman and pats himself on the back. So we have somebody who's doing that in other places. Yeah. Um, but it's really interesting over time when you think about um, this idea of of liquidity and having liquidity um, at exactly the right time is is how you make the biggest returns. And Stan Druckenmiller has a line about this. He says, you know, the way you, you make big returns is preservation of capital and home runs. Well, how do you preserve capital? Well, one, you avoid buying overvalued assets. Mm-hmm. Two, you don't 
reject the idea that cash is an asset and can have huge protective value because uh, you can't be wrong, right? You own cash, you're, you're not going to lose money on it. Um, and then third is this idea of, of home runs, is how do you get home runs? Well, when you get an edge, you know, my, my big thing in my Twitter feed is hashtag edge. Well, when you get an edge, whatever that edge is, uh, you have to have the courage or the guts to really bet big. And you think about when Druck was with Soros and all the things they did when they had an edge, whether it was with the pound or whether it was in a certain company or a certain asset class. And uh, they would wait patiently with lots and lots of cash. They would preserve capital and then they would pounce. And the other thing about this that's really interesting and you know, most people don't, don't understand this about investing, but preservation of capital is really important. And, and it's what differentiates the real long-term winners from the losers. But the thing that separates the really great investors from, from the just good investors is the uncanny ability to double up and to press the winners. So I, I want to make sure that we talk about this because uh, I've talked about it before on the on the podcast. One time I asked you, I said, "What is the biggest difference between the top five best investors yep. in the world and the top one percent?" So I wasn't interested in you know what separates the good from mm-hmm. the not good or even the great from the good, but the absolute five best from the really 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 good, right? Yep. So basically, what separates that that you know five best from their peers? And you said to me, "Well, it's that ability to double up you know, to you, to have specific, courage." I think your specific statement was they cut their losers faster oh, than anyone, yeah, and they press the winners harder than. Yeah, anyone. okay, yes, that, there, are, there are two parts to it. Thank yeah. you for reminding. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, um, you know, Soros has the line right: "I'm only rich because I admit my mistakes faster than other people." Mm-hmm. And what most people do is the exact opposite of what you should do is we water our weeds and we pull our flowers. As soon as we make a little bit of money, we pull the flower. Mm. I'm I'm up 10%, I won. No, no, add more, because it's gonna continue to go. And what we do is when we're wrong, we try to justify, oh, the market's wrong and I'm right, or I'm I'm early, euphemism for wrong, and I'm gonna be right later. And so the great cost averaging down. (laughs) Yeah, and everybody said, I'm gonna average down. Never, ever, ever average down. It's just, it's a horrible decision. And people say, well, Mark, you're a value investor and you you say all the time that you should average down. Well, averaging down is different than buying more of something as it becomes cheaper. Mm-hmm. The difference is when, when you're speculating on something, when you're buying something just on price and it moves against you, you're just wrong. Right? When you buy something with a margin of safety and it continues to deteriorate because everybody else is puking it out, like the energy stocks today, then you, you've done the analysis, you have the edge, you have the, the ability to, to buy more. So some could nitpick and say that's the same thing. I'll grant that, actually. But, but what you're talking about specifically is this difference between price and value, which, yes. which I think that um, is very, uh, maybe not very well understood, but, but well discussed in traditional markets in the crypto world is almost a non-existent conversation. A non-existent conversation. Right. And, and 
what you're specifically talking about is if you're making investment decisions based on price alone, then you very quickly know you're right or you're wrong, right? Yep. And it's very easy to measure on yep. a, a quantitative basis. When you are making a value-based investment, so not necessarily related to the price, but you understand what an asset is worth based on yep. whatever that analysis yep. is, and the price is below that value, Yep. The price movement is almost less important as is it still below the value? Correct. Right. The relation to the value is much more important than is it up five or ten percent today or down five or ten percent today? Because you Perfect. want to continue to buy the asset that is undervalued in price yep. as long as it is undervalued. No, that's that's exactly that's exactly right and, and really well said. Um, we must have been hanging out together. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, it, it's interesting in the sense that. Um, Cutting losers is is critically important, and you know, the first loss is the best loss, and and not not uh, trying to convince the world you're right and the market's wrong. But this this real uncanny ability, and, and to me, what separates the the truly top five from from everybody else is this uncanny ability to double up. And you know, I'd said I've, I had the luxury of, of having Julian Robertson as a mentor and and friend, and he helped seed Morgan Creek when we got started. And uh, in fact, the funny story is um, I got this email when I announced my resignation, and, and it said, say it ain't so, Julian. You know, like Shoeless <laughs> Joe Jackson. And I joke, I don't get a lot of emails from billionaires. In fact, at that time, that was my first one. And I uh, got a couple others since then, but that was the first one. And uh, hit the bid, and I, I came up to New York and uh, walked in the building across the street, went up to the 48th floor, and, and I joke, I thought I was going to get my Nike shoe deal. And people say, what are you talking about? I'm like, well... Nike shoe deal is works like this is the coach at the university doesn't make a lot of money from the university. He gets the money from his Nike shoe deal and television and radio and all this stuff or an alumni slush fund. And so I figured that Julian was going to say, hey, Mark, I know we can't pay you enough, but, you know, we'll we'll find a way to get you some more money. And uh, instead, I walk in, he comes out, he puts his arm around me, says, Mark, I'm surprised you lasted that long. <laughs> I like you and I want to work together. I'm like. I hit that bid, and uh, so he got better it. than a Nike deal. Better than a Nike deal, way better. And uh, but but because I I, I got close to him, um, I had the the luxury one of then investing with all the great firms that spun out of of there from Blue Ridge to Lone Pine to Maverick to you know just dozens of firms, and got to know those guys. And one of the cool things I did is I would I would interview all of these guys on on Julian and I have these notebooks full of, of pages, probably write a book, um, on, on what made him great. It was amazing. You know, everyone had a different perspective. You know, the macro guys would talk about his macro views or the the underlying guys would, would say, you know, one of the favorite things about Julian, he said, you know, never fudge the numbers. If you don't know, don't start talking because he'll know. And, uh, you know, the other one was just about competitiveness, right? If you're not competitive, you're out. And uh, it doesn't matter if competitive in what, right? It can be tennis, golf, tiddlywinks, you know, equestrian, doesn't matter. Just he wants you to be competitive. And then the other is honesty and integrity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there's, there's nothing else without that. And so, but the thing they all said, you know, 30 plus of these interviews that I've done, they all said he had this uncanny ability to double up. Mm-hmm. So when most people are afraid because you know they've made money and they don't want to lose it he's adding to it and that ability to see the future it's it's the the Jeff Bezos to say 
I'm going to make this a world changing technology. And people are like, no, it's a bookstore online. Who cares? Like, no, it's, it's bigger than that. And, you know, it's the ability to ride with it. And here's the amazing thing about Amazon. So Amazon went public in 1998. So it's been public for 20 years. In every single year, including this year, it's had a double digit drawdown. The average drawdown is 31%. So I say, how many people actually bought the IPO in 98 and still hold the stock today? That would be Jeff and his parents. That's it. <laughs> because everybody else got shaken out because twice it was down more than 90%. But to have the ability to hold through that volatility because you just have a, a belief and a passion in this being a great business and a great um, business model and, and a great uh, investment is, is really uh, uh, a superpower. It is an absolute superpower. And I've, I've only had the experience on a handful of occasions over time. So I've, I've literally met with thousands of managers. I mean, you know, did 400 meetings a year for most of my career. People always call bullshit on that. I'm like, well, like, give me my calendar and do it. <laughs> um, and uh, only a handful of times have I walked away saying, you know, that person has it. And it is um, the ability to, to be a true believer, to really hold something dear that everybody else questions. And I remember having this, this conversation with a manager um, out in California, and, and uh, we still invest with him today. Um, and he worked at this firm called Integral Capital with this famous guy, Roger McNamee, you know, kind of Grateful Dead kind of rocker. Um, and uh, Glenn worked with him and, and it was amazing. And Google had just gone public and was starting to fall. And a value manager, friend of mine, uh, said, oh, you know, Google's not, not worth 50 bucks. And it, you know, gone public at 50, gone to 100, it was falling back. and. And I'm sitting there saying, you know, I, I really don't know why you own Google and, and you, should, you should really uh, probably sell, according to my value manager friend. And, and Glenn looks at me and says, Mark, you're crazy. You just, don't, you just don't understand. This has nothing to do with value today. It has to do with what this technology is capable of and how it can be monetized in all these ways. And, and I listened to him and I just went, wow. Okay, he's a true believer. And clearly Google at a thousand, Glenn was right and you know, Richard was wrong. Um, but that ability to not just own it mm -hmm. and be happy just making some money, but to keep buying more of it mm -hmm. and uh, to really press those big winners. And you know, that's where great fortunes. Skirt, skirt. Wanna know who has the best URL? Crypto.com. That's right, crypto.com. They're a crypto platform with one goal, mother mass adoption. That's why we're all here. We're trying to get crypto in every wallet. Crypto.com is helping people do that through buying, earning, lending, and card payment. Everything you could want at crypto.com. Go help your boy out. Tell him Pomp sent you. Download the app or visit crypto.com. Pomp's got you always. Ever wanted to get into mining and didn't know how? Don't worry. Your boy Pomp's got you. Everybody got some electricity and Wi-Fi. All you got to do is go to coinmine.com. You buy a coin mine. It's like an Xbox or a PlayStation that helps you turn your electricity into Bitcoin. That's right. You purchase it. It shows up at your doorstep. You pull it out of the box. You plug it in, connect to your Wi-Fi. Five minutes or less, you're mining Bitcoin. All you have to do is control it from the mobile app they provide. And then you receive over-the-air updates that add new coins and new 
features on a consistent basis. Kind of like how Tesla does over the air updates and updates the car software. Just your update in your coin mine. Consumer mining made easy. That's right, go to coinmine.com, tell them Pomp set you, and thank me later. One more word from our sponsor, BlockFi. Their new interest account allows you to securely deposit your Bitcoin or Ether at BlockFi and receive 6% annual interest paid monthly in cryptocurrency. This rate actually compounds, so you receive a 6.2% APY, which is very attractive given the alternatives. So you can actually take your Bitcoin, you can deposit it with BlockFi and get paid an interest rate of 6% in return. Go check out BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, BlockFi.com slash POMP to sign up and start earning interest on your crypto today. It always cracks me up. Uh, the one saying that I love, uh, which is you have to be very careful with because uh, if you're wrong, this works against you. Uh, but the idea that uh, concentration builds wealth and diversification preserves it. Yep. Everyone knows the saying. Everyone is scared, you know, frankly, shitless of deploying it because you are increasing the risk of loss of capital yep. if you're wrong. Yep. But you are increasing the probability of uh, outpacing the returns if you're right. Oh, my God. Well, look, it, ex post, it's the easiest saying in the world. <laughs> it is so easy after the fact to say, oh, concentration builds wealth. Of course, you should have put all your money in Amazon. Of course, you should put all your money in Apple. Mm-hmm. Apple at $7 when people were saying it was going to zero Mm -hmm. because they had nothing new and no real competitive advantage and Microsoft was kicking their ass. That was tough Mm -hmm. to hold on at single digits. Um, And what's interesting about about that point, Pomp, is that if you think about... I love this screen so we can pop our peas on the podcast (laughs) and uh, it doesn't sound bad. Um, But... uh, if you think about this this construct of, of concentration and diversification, right? I spent my life, um, I always talk about it in chapters. So chapter one is I worked for not-for-profits and I loved it and it was great. And I, lo- I love the psychic income of getting up every morning and going in and, and knowing that we're making, you know, faculty's lives better and students' lives better and the university's better. And, and, and that was great. And then chapter two was building Morgan Creek and, and building this asset management business. And chapter three is what we're doing together in Morgan Creek Digital. And then chapter four is I'll teach. Um, but what's interesting is if you think about what most people think about me is they they think about me as this uh, endowment investment guy. It's all about diversification. And what are you talking about this concentration thing? And I'm like, no, what you're missing is, again, what I've learned about great, great investors, you know, those those top tier investors is their ability uh, to do a couple things. One is the willingness to concentrate. Two, being visionary to see where the puck is headed. You know, the, everyone says it's Wayne Gretzky. It wasn't Wayne. It was actually his dad. His dad, and people said, why is Wayne so great? He says, well, because he skates to where the puck is going to be, not to where the puck is. Um, but it was actually the dad. And the key is that yeah, those, are, those are requisite skills to be a great investor is you have to be visionary. You have to, to see the next thing. And you have to get out of, in front of it. Uh, and you have to be willing to double up. But, but one of the things that's really, really important is you have to be willing to be wrong. 
And so many people are paralyzed at the thought of being wrong. And Twitter's full of this, right? People go back and they'll search through my Twitter feed and say, you were wrong a year and a half ago when you said this. I'm like, what are you talking about? Of course I was wrong. I'm wrong all the time. But I don't stay wrong. Being wrong is fine. Staying wrong is not. Mm -hmm. And so great investors are wrong way more than bad investors. Mm -hmm. Because bad investors don't act. Mm -hmm. They're so paralyzed at the fear of being wrong that they don't make investments. Mm -hmm. And so they can't be wrong. But a great investor keeps trying things, keeps pushing the envelope, and when they're wrong, they fix it immediately, right? They do the Soros, admit they're wrong, move on to the next idea, because they've always got great ideas. Mm -hmm. The key is if, if you don't have lots of great ideas all the time, well, then you're not doing it right, right? You should constantly be looking and reading and thinking and talking to people and, and looking for great ideas and, and pushing that envelope and keep trying them all. And one of the things I love about venture capital investing is you want zeros, right? You want to put money into something and lose it all. People say, what are you talking about? That's not what a fiduciary does. I'm like, well, of course it is. Because if I make 10 investments and three of them go to zero and five of them are just in, eh, but two of them, make 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 X, I win. And so that ability to be wrong, to be comfortable being wrong, to, I say it all the time is, um, my wife has said, you know, that I'm frequently wrong, never in doubt. I'm like, well, occasionally wrong, never in doubt. Um, definitely never in doubt. And we say, well, how, in fact, my wife's only seen me speak one time. And I speak a lot. And I give speeches all over the world and, and I've done it for years. And and uh, so she finally came to a conference in, in Vegas and uh, she came and she sat in the back and at the end of the speech, she comes and she says, oh my God, you, you can't say things like that. I'm like, say things like what? She says, you say things with such conviction. Like, you're sure? I'm like, well, what's wrong with that? She says, well, well people will believe you. I said, well, that's actually kind of the idea. She says, but what if you're wrong? I'm like, well, then I'll change my mind. So strong opinions loosely held. Mm -hmm. If you don't have strong opinions, if you don't have conviction, if you don't have courage, you won't act. Mm -hmm. If you don't act, you can't win. Mm -hmm. If you make, if you act and you're wrong, then fix it. Yeah. And then go to the next thing. And how do you get conviction? Well, you do the work. Most people don't want to do the work, right? They want to hear about a good idea. They want to hear. And great lesson in life, right? We, we all learn from our mistakes more than our, our successes. In fact, I, I keep on my desk, right? Right on my desk, it's a, a little thing. It says, um, failure changes for the better, success for the worse, from Seneca the Younger. Uh, and it's so true, right? When you're successful, you get lazy mm -hmm. because you think it's you. Mm -hmm. And then you get caught off guard and you get smashed. When you fail, you learn. And another good friend of mine, great uh, hedge fund manager um, out in California, has a great line. He says, with every investment, we get richer or wiser, never both. <laughs> because you don't get wiser when you're right. You only get wiser when you're wrong. And when you recognize that mistake, um, you acknowledge that mistake, you learn from it, and then you forget about it. That Ralph thing that uh, Dean Smith used to talk about. So you know, recognize it, admit it, learn from it, forget it. And 
uh, I had this this first job. So I'm working at this discipline investment advisors. We have a billion dollars and people are calling us all the time and the brokers are, are giving us hot stock tips. And so I had just gotten my rollover 401k from my first job and I had, you know, a few thousand dollars and uh, I was going to be a big swinger. And, uh, you know, instead of, of doing what I should have done. So I grew up in Seattle and a bunch of my friends don't work anymore because they went to work for this little company called Microsoft. Now, if you've ever seen the picture of the original seven, you wouldn't have gone to work with those guys. They look like freaks, but I should have gone to work there like some of my friends, but I didn't. And so here it is, 1991, you know, I had this money. All I had to do is buy Microsoft, Cisco, Intel, a couple other tech companies, I would have been set. No, 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 no. This broker calls up and he's got two hot stock tips. <laughs> and the uh, the receptionist calls me and says, hey, you know, Joe says uh, you should you should buy these two companies. I'm like, okay. So I take half my 401k distribution. I put it in one company. I put the other half. Concentration. I had done no work. I had done no homework. I didn't know this guy from Adam. But I was in this you know, new job and this guy had to be smart. No, he didn't have to be smart. He was trying to sell shit. <laughs> and... Long story short, obviously, I lost my ass. Now, what's great is one of the stocks literally went to zero. <laughs> but the cool thing about the broker uh, that I used, when you when something goes to zero, they don't take it off your statement. So every month when I opened up my statement, it was still there. And it was a great reminder, don't ever do that again. Mm -hmm. Don't ever take a hot stock tip, do the work. And uh, But I learned so much from that experience about if you're gonna take concentrated positions. If you're going to um, focus on an area, do your own work, um, find people who have, have real expertise in the area, and, and then follow them. Uh, don't take hot stock tips. So I want to talk about, uh, as part of doing that work, uh, this idea of innovation as an asset class. And um, you know, I think that what it really is saying is tying a lot of these ideas together of uh, innovation is the things that are being built today that will eventually become the trend later, yep. right? Um, and, and so it's very early opportunities to get in front of things is yep. where the innovation is. Yep. Um, and so this idea of innovation as an asset class, maybe describe a little bit about what you mean by that and, and how people should think about that as, uh, as they think about investing and, and portfolio construction. Well, you and I have talked about this a lot in that, um, you know, sorry, four asset classes you can own, right? There are stocks, bonds, currencies, and commodities. And everybody else talks about all these other things. You know, what about venture capital? What about private equity? What about hedge funds? I'm like, no. At the end of the day, I own a stock, a bond, a currency, or a commodity. Let's take private equity. In private equity deal, I own common stock, preferred stock, or a convertible bond. Well, what about real estate? Well, I own the equity of the deal, the debt of the deal, or the land, the commodity. What about hedge funds? Well, hedge funds, mutual funds, private partnerships, separate accounts, they own stocks, bonds, currencies, and commodities. I mean, a hedge fund is just a legal structure, just like a mutual fund, it's a legal structure. So I, I came up with this idea of innovation as an asset class, which is antithetical to what I just said, in the sense of, well, no, if you're gonna invest in innovation, you're either gonna own a stock, a bond, a currency, or a commodity, true but but the idea of innovation as an asset class is basically saying that i want to focus on owning and mostly i'm going to own equity i might own some convertible debt but i want to own 
ideas and I want to own the future and I want to own big secular trends uh, over the long term. And, and, and the way I came to this was, again, I've, I've been blessed to have great mentors and, and have great relationships and, and really hang out with some of the best investors on the planet. And when you when you watch what they do, if, if you look at the best performing funds over the years, they, they share a couple common traits. Uh, one is they have very high weighting in private investments, so they take advantage of the illiquidity premium. The second is they have a high weighting in venture capital. So what, what is venture capital? Venture capital is, is allocated capital to entrepreneurs who are going to build something, uh, and it could be any number of things, um, but they're pursuing ideas, they're pursuing business models, they're pursuing uh, innovation. And so uh, as I experienced over time, uh, you know, I started with bonds. And bonds are, are just a you know, lending money to somebody and you, you, you get a small fee for that. And, and it's a nice, safe investment. It's actually a horrible investment for a young person. You know, in fact, I actually say it should be against the law for people under 40 to own bonds. Um, we'll come back to that later. But uh, you go, oh, what do you mean against the law? I'm like, just trust me on that one. You should own no bonds because the bond is really your future income stream. Think of that as fixed income over your life. Uh, and you can own bonds later when you're retired. Um, the second is that you know equity uh, is a claim on the cash flows of a business, and, and that's what makes it great. But what you really want to own is the innovation behind the business that's going to build uh, new assets or, or new industries, or and it, it it can be things that are little e entrepreneurial or big e entrepreneurial. You have a great line that that I stole from you guys, and, and people have heard me talk about this, that what I love about spending time together is uh, from the very beginning, even when we didn't know each other that well, I say, it's like talking to myself, right? I mean, everything you do on Twitter, I like. Um, it's like, wait, I would have said that. Wait, I might have said something like that. That's or, scary. You yeah, see some of the stuff I said? Yeah, that is scary. <laughs> but, I would say it's like talking to a younger, better looking version of myself. But what's cool is um, I stole this this line uh, that you talk about that uh, technology or innovation can can do two things, right? It, it can it can make an old thing better or it can make something totally new. Well, big e entrepreneurship, making something new. That's freaking hard. I mean, it's really hard. Um, there's per- people who do it, and there are a lot of people who've done it, and there are a lot of ways to capitalize on it and make a lot of money from it. But literally entrepreneurship, you know, making old things better is actually not as hard. And you know, it's funny, when I, when I first uh, started thinking about leaving the university and starting a, a new business, you know, I was trepidatious, and people would say, well, Mark, you're such an entrepreneur. I'm like, bite your, what are you talking about? I've worked in the safe environment. I work for not-for-profits my whole life. I am I'm the least entrepreneurial person on the planet. I said, are you kidding me? You created a management company. You spun out of the university. You built two offices. You helped build Notre Dame's office. You're totally an entrepreneur. I said, Oh, okay. I'm a little e entrepreneur. I love to build things, but I don't want to try to invent things. That's that's not my thing. Um, but it, this, it's the one thing I, I think I've said this to you before is, uh, you know, I spent most of my life technology startups um, that world, and as I've learned more about the Wall Street asset management and kind of finance world, if you look around, every single person who is you know one of these world class entrepreneurs, they don't call themselves entrepreneurs, right? 
they're all investors, <laughs> right? The, the, every single one so of good. them uh, has the identification of I'm an investor, I'm an investor, I'm an investor. But you look and you say, you built a business that has, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of employees, yeah. right? Or, you know, 50 employees and you've got all these assets and, and you built a company. Yeah. It just might not look like a software based company, right. right? Or it might not look like a restaurant or something like that. But it is a company. You did start it and you did build it. And, yeah. you know, you can call yourself whatever you want. Yeah, but at the end of the day, you started a company, right? Yeah. And, and, and it's just one little nuance of the two industries where you know you would never find a tech entrepreneur in building a fintech to say they were an investor they're a founder that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really it's a great insight again and 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 so true and and it it really helped me when i you know got over this hump of of thinking about it and like that's kind of another thing that that's funny someone said to me once um you're a great salesman. I'm like, I am not a salesman. I'm an investor. And they're like, no, you're a really great salesman. I'm like, no, I am not a salesman. I am an investor. And uh, he said, well, no, you're just looking at it wrong. He said, sales is simply transferring your enthusiasm to another. I'm like, oh, dang, I am actually pretty good at that. I can get enthusiastic about stuff and I can make other people enthusiastic. And, and that's ultimately how you build stuff mm -hmm. is you harness enthusiasm and you get other people excited and you, and you bring them along. Um, but this, again, this goes back to this idea of innovation and, and whether it was Glenn understanding the innovation that was occurring inside Google and that it was a better way to do search and a better way to, I mean, look, it's a verb. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about it, right? It didn't exist in 1996 and now it's a verb uh, that I use every single day. Uh, crazy. Crazy. And so um, that's really astonishing and, and the wealth that's been created by it. And, and it's why I get so excited about blockchain technology and Bitcoin and, and all the things that I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. But I, I, I just, I've never lacked for um, enthusiasm about what I do. One, because I get to interact with such great people. Two, because I'm constantly exposed to these new ideas and these things that that literally are changing the world mm -hmm. and change the world for the better. Sometimes, you know, a little little less less for the better <laughs> uh, if they get abused or, or not used properly. But uh, I, I just find so much um, intellectual stimulation and challenge in trying to intuit uh, one where, where that puck is going, you know, what what cyclical or secular trend should we be focused on? You know, what what area of, of, of innovation should we be focused on? And then how to get that innovation into our portfolio. And I'll just give you two quick examples. So if you think about most people would tell you if you ask them, who's the best investor in the country, they say, oh, David Swenson, Yale, number one, They're actually number three. That's not taking anything away from David. He's amazing. And Dean Takahashi. Number three is pretty good. Yeah, well, and, and, you know, Dean Takahashi, who's been the number two at Yale that no one ever talks about, you know, it's like I always feel sorry for Caulfield and Byers, you know, Kleiner Perkins, because no one knows Caulfield and Byers, but, but they're really good investors. <laughs> and but it's Kleiner Perkins or sometimes even Kleiner. And they don't even talk about Perkins. Like, but they were all really good. Um, so Dean Takahashi doesn't get mentioned or um, but Yale's pretty good. And they've got 52 percent in private and they've got 17 percent in venture and innovation, and that's fantastic. But the number two 
uh, performing fund was actually Jeremy Grantham, contrary to my board chairman saying he's never right. His foundation and his asset allocation is even more simple, 40% hedge funds as a fixed income replacement, 20% emerging market equity, because that's where all the growth is, and 40% venture capital. Think about that, 40% venture capital. And it's because he believes in innovation as an asset class. But the best performing fund is neither one of those. It's a firm called the Dietrich Foundation. And their asset allocation goes back to the investment committee. It should be an odd number and three is too many. The guy said, I'm the investment committee, so I don't have to argue with anybody. I'm going to put 15%, one five in cash to fund two years of spending, and then 85% in private. And the bulk of that is going to be in venture and growth equity, and 25 of the 85 points are going to be in China. So Chinese private investments is 25%. People are like, oh my gosh, that's so risky. It's not risky at all. Okay? It's where the growth is. He's doing proven business models that you know make tons and tons of money. But most people perceive risk incorrectly in that they hear China, they hear risk. They hear venture capital, they hear risk. Well, it's only risky if you did one thing, right? If I made one venture investment in China, that's pretty risky. If I made one venture investment in the United States, pretty risky. But if I have a whole portfolio of innovation, I'm going to have great outcomes. For sure. I want to go through a couple of uh, thoughts that you have. Uh, I'm cheating because I know you well enough to uh, to know that the buttons that hit here. Uh, but we'll go through a couple of these and then we'll get to uh, Bitcoin and, and crypto. Um, the first is uh, inflation steals wealth from the poor. Oh. Now, Mark could talk about this for yeah. hours. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we'll, we'll try to keep it short. But look, I, I told the story about you know the, Jek- the creature from Jekyll Island and, and why the Fed was created basically to enrich banks uh, and steal wealth from... The, the second part of that is it's created to steal wealth from the poor and the middle class. People say, what are you talking about? Uh, you know, it saves us. No, it doesn't. So the idea that inflation is a good thing and we've been sold a bill of goods over years that inflation is a good thing. Well, it means you know, my income's rising or you know, I get a raise every year or get a cost of living adjustment. Well, yeah, that's fine. But what it's really designed to do is to inflate the value of assets, real assets, real estate, stocks, et cetera. Now, the problem is 49% of people in this country don't own any assets. Mm-hmm. Half the people in this country couldn't raise $400 for an emergency. Mm-hmm. So they don't own the assets that are being inflated by this mythical uh, devaluation of our currency. So, so just to give everyone uh, who's listening a quick kind of context here, um, there are two ways that this 49% are essentially affected by inflation. One is uh, they don't have something called a wage adjust or an inflation adjusted wage contract, yep. which basically means if you have a job that you're working and every year you get a raise, that's about 2%, 3%, yep. whatever it is. What they're essentially doing is they're increasing your salary enough to uh, mitigate the uh, effect of inflation. If you happen to work, let's say at an hourly job that doesn't have this inflation adjustment, you're getting paid the same amount. So let's just say $10 an hour, $10 an hour every year, uh, year after year, the problem is that actually you're getting paid less on a purchasing power basis because your $10 that hour that you worked is that can buy you less and less goods over time. So you think you're getting paid the same, but it's slowly devaluing away the currency that you're getting paid. That's one. Two is what Mark's talking about.
about, which is uh, that 49%, they have no real assets. So they don't own anything. They actually leave their wealth in cash, mainly because they're living paycheck to paycheck. And so what inflation does is it, it frankly just ravages their wealth because yep. it is being devalued away. And we're talking about a, you know the most developed country in the world where it's not like we have hyperinflation, but if you go and you look in the hyperinflation markets, like let's say you know Venezuela's got 10 million yeah. percent, you're talking about literally one day, you know, 10 Boliviar can go and buy a loaf of bread. The next day, 100 Boliviar can't buy a loaf of bread, right? Yep. The, the inflation there is much more obvious because it is hyperinflation. The same thing happens in the U.S. with inflation. It's just not as obvious because the, the numbers are smaller. Well, we're boiling the frog, right? It's the old back to science, right? If you put a frog in water and it's hot, he'll jump out. If you crank it up a couple degrees, it's like a bath. By the time he wants to jump out, he can't because his muscles don't work. Mm -hmm. So the same thing's happening to us. We're being boiled like frogs. And look, the Fed was created to, to create this inflation. And inflation, I said, robs wealth because what it's doing is it's devaluing the currency. From 1776 to 1913, a dollar was worth a dollar. It had fluctuations up and down, recessions, wars, et cetera, but it was basically worth a dollar. Today, a dollar, 100 plus years later, 106 years later, is worth about you know three and a half cents. Mm -hmm. So it's Nin been- 98% uh, decrease in purchasing yeah, power from 1913. Been devalued all this amount. And it and it because it's happening slowly, people don't really observe it. And so uh, when people talk about well, you know, we can fix income inequality and wealth inequality, and you know, we just need to cut interest rates again, and we just need to stimulate the economy more. I'm like, no, cutting interest rates doesn't stimulate the economy. You know, QE doesn't stimulate the economy. Um, what stimulates the economy is job creation. Where's job creation occur? Small businesses, not big businesses. We didn't need to cut taxes for the super big companies. That's all bogus, something called stealth QE. It's a way to financially engineer higher stock prices for the rich people. We'll get to that in a second. It just, anyway. so, so the flip side of the inflation is there's basically 50-50 split in the country, right? So you have the bottom half who is, inflation is absolutely crushing yep. their wealth. The other 50%, they own the real assets. Yeah. <laughs> and so if you're going to inflate the asset prices, what ends up happening is they actually are getting wealthier at the expense of the bottom 50% because their wealth is not stored in cash. It's stored in these real assets. The real asset prices go up and literally the inflation, they like it because it is making them richer. Of course. Yeah. And, and the top 1% owns the vast majority of those assets. So they love it. And they're the ones that control the government by placing the people in power who they want in power. And uh, I, I make the, the the joke today that, you know, there's no Democrats, Republicans, no left, no right. There's just in and out. When you're in power, you do or say whatever it takes to stay in. And when you're out of power, you do or say whatever it takes to get in. And, and that's the way we've gone is we have Republicans in charge, Tea Party Republicans in charge, and we just created the biggest deficit in history. Forget Republicans, Democrats, left, right. It's just in, out. And what that does is if the 1% controls the government, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. What we're going to get is a corrupt environment mm -hmm. and this, this stealing of wealth from that middle class and that, as you said, decimation mm -hmm. of the middle class. And, and so, uh, 
talk maybe a little bit about the relationship between how inflation works and uh, the interest rate cuts in the QE, basically the two tools that central banks have whenever we get towards recessive periods. They cut rates and they print more money, uh, which is now, uh, I love the term you use, of the new abnormal. The new abnormal, <laughs> yes. So maybe talk a little bit about how that has impacted asset prices over the last decade or so, and, and then also really the middle class. I mean, it's pretty obvious in terms of the wealth inequality, uh, kind of the inflection point that's occurred over the last decade or so. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the idea that that, um, I mean, it, it, if you think about fixing of prices, any type of fixing of prices, minimum wages, um, fixed prices in rent control, or interest rates, right? That's a bad idea. The market should set prices. And the price of money or the price of interest rates should be set by the markets. But no, we have this you know, bunch of stale white guys that, uh, pale, stale, and, and male, you know, that, that, that uh, determine, although we did a Janet Yellen, so. Um, but mostly uh, these older people who are PhDs and they set this, this price. And it's, it's very uh, non-transparent. It's very uh, based on human decisions and, and analysis and you know, it's all the time. Why would we trust a group of people? And this is not an exaggeration. There have been 244 quarterly estimates of growth issued by the Fed. They're over. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> right? I could coin flip and be right half the time. They're over. So why would we think that they are going to make good decisions on interest rates policy? They're not. So then it makes the assumption that they're trying to make good decisions. They're not. So the idea that the Fed can stimulate the economy by lowering interest rates and giving um, better access to capital for businesses made sense when interest rates varied between some lower bound and some upper bound. And you know, we had the craziness of the 70s and we had the normal period of, of the you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, 80s, 90s. But once you get below 2%, once you get in this, this zero bound of interest rates, that, that tool loses its effectiveness. And so raising interest rates didn't slow the economy as much and slowing and, and lowering interest rates hasn't stimulated the economy as much. Well, really what that is is what people forget is the economy isn't driven by interest rates. It's driven by people and it's driven by demographics and demographics are destiny. And you know, you're going to ask me later, I know you're going to ask me what's my favorite, you know, my most important book. And, and I, I, I don't want to give one, so I'm going I'm to weave in a couple, but, but one that I think is really important is this, this uh, idea of, of Harry Dent wrote a book called The Great Boom Ahead. And what's interesting is his first book is awesome. The rest of the books, eh, not so much. Uh, and I like Harry. He's a good guy. But people don't like him because he's been very bearish on the market and predicting doom and gloom. And, but his first book is amazing. And in it, he, he talks about a couple things that are really, really important. One is this idea that demographics drives everything. And we can tell exactly what's going to happen in a society based on the number of 25 to 45-year-old people, the number of 45 to 65-year-old people, and the number of 65 to 85-year-old people. When you have 25 to 45-year-old people, you have low productivity and high inflation. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense. It's not because 
young people aren't smart or nice or good. It's just that they're not trained. They're not highly productive. And so you borrow from your customers in the form of higher inflation to train your workers. When you're 45 to 65, age cohort dominates, you're going to be really highly productive and you have lots of spending. The maximum spending in your life is age 46 and a half. You got the two kids, you got college, you got cars, you got vacations, you're spending all this money. It's like potato chips. You eat the maximum number of potato chips when you're 13. You'll never eat more potato chips in your whole life than when you were 13. And you'll never spend more money when you're 46 and a half. So things happen at certain times in your life. So it's not surprising that we had this great boom when everybody in the U.S., the baby boomers, were turning 45 to 65. Now, every day, 10,000 people turn 65 every single day for the next 17 years. And it's no surprise that we have less productivity and less spending because it turns out 65 to 85 year olds don't spend a lot. And they're not very productive. It doesn't mean they're not nice people, um, but the demographics demographics drives everything. And so ultimately that, that demographics can't be trumped by interest rate policy. And so if you look around the world, Japan was first. Japan has the oldest demographics. And so they started down 1989 and they've had now, you know, 29 years, 30 years of bad economic growth, low interest rates, zero interest rates. And um, people think that that's not going to happen to us. Well, it is because it's happening in Europe. You see almost all of European debt now is is trading below zero, NERP, negative interest rates. And U.S. interest rates, despite everybody saying that the bond bull market was over and bond prices had to go down and interest rates had to go up, I mean, uh, uh, yields had to go up, exact opposites happen. So demographics is destiny. And the Fed is less omnipotent. Uh, in fact, this friend of mine has a great line. He says, I remember a day, I'm old enough, I remember a day when I didn't know the names of central bankers. <laughs> I long for that day to return. And so what they've gone to do is, is QE. And you know, people think QE is new. It's not new. We did it in the 30s. And Ray Dalio writes about this and talks about it, is in the 30s, we had this thing called the Great Depression. And if you think about the 1930s, we were an emerging market. The United States was an emerging market. If you've seen the movie Gangs in New York, this was not a good place to live from 1860 to 1920. Um, it's kind of rough and you could you know, die walking down the street. By 1929, the Italian gang beat the Irish gang, you know, Viva Italia. And so now we're a country run by a single gang, but no one would buy our debt. And because uh, post-World War One, and, you know, we were an emerging market. So no one wanted to buy our debt. So we bought our own debt. So we bailed ourselves out. And then in 1937, we had zero interest rates, just like today. And we tried to raise rates to 25 basis points. And we turned the Great Recession into the Great Depression. And then it wasn't until World War II when we were able to stimulate our way out to get out of it. And so we had this 20-year period of, of really badness uh, all around this idea of QE and zero interest rate bound. And so Fed policy becomes less powerful. And so now you have these central bankers who they feel powerful, right? They're voted time man of the year. You know, Ben Bernanke saved the world. Ben Bernanke did not save the world. China saved the world, right? China pumped $4 trillion into the global economy. It wasn't the U.S. cutting interest rates and doing QE. It was China. And so uh, the key here is we're at this point now where... Everyone thinks the Fed is invincible. Everyone thinks central banks have it all under control. But what we've seen is 
it's not working, right? You had all the ECB interest rate cuts, they're in recession. Japan, interest rate cuts, negative yields. You know, Bank of Japan now owns 75% of Japanese government bonds and three quarters of all their ETFs. Hasn't worked. So US is going down that path. And we talked about, uh, I said I would talk about stealth QE, right? Everyone talks about the Tax Act. Why do we do the Tax Act? Tax Act had nothing to do with taxes. It had to do with the Fed, by law, is prohibited from buying stocks. They bought all the bonds they could buy. And so they need to buy stocks to try to keep the stock market up, to keep the wealth effect going, to keep stealing from the poor. And so the government said, hey, here's the deal. We'll go to the companies that have a lot of cash, Apple, et cetera. We'll give you all a big tax cut. But you have to promise to buy back your stock and pump up stock prices. So they're not allowed to do CapEx. They're not allowed to do investment for the future. They're not allowed to invest in innovation. They just got to buy back their stock. Well, why is that? Well, because people like Warren Buffett own lots of stock. So it's all a big circular thing of concentrating the wealth closer and closer in the, the top 1%. So I'll call it stealth QE. So now we're at this point where you got the president browbeating the guy that he hired. Right? How, how weird is it that the guy has hired seven people and then within months called them incompetent? That's just weird, right? Why would you tell somebody, why would you tell the world that you hired an incompetent person? But maybe the incompetence is coming from someplace else. Um, but the key is that, you know, Jerome Powell is doing the best he can in a flawed system because under or approaching the zero bound, monetary policy stops working. Mm-hmm. And what you really need is fiscal policy, or more importantly, what you need is innovation, mm-hmm. right? If it's up to me, I would create a massive venture capital fund funded by the government, funded by Social Security, and I would invest in all the great entrepreneurs and I would and own a piece of what they do. Wait, somebody does that. It's called the government of Singapore. They take their Social Security money and they invest it around the world with the best entrepreneurs and they are wildly overfunded in their uh, entitlements programs because they actually invest. Instead of using a you know Rob Peter to pay Paul system, they actually invest. And investment, particularly investment in innovation, would solve all those problems. And then we wouldn't need this, you know, Ponzi scheme esque way of you know you keep working so I can retire. Um, we solve that problem. It, it, it's uh, it's pretty crazy when you start to tie in the history of how this stuff was created, why it was created, who created it. Um, you tie in the data of the impact that it's had and you add in um, pretty educated estimates of what is likely to occur in the future, whether it's demographic or just other examples around the world. Uh, You look at a system that um, I don't want to call it uh, failing, but it's definitely flawed in many ways. And the part that to me is the most shocking is one, there's incentives, whether it's from the government side or, or the banking side, uh, to continue the charade, right? Yeah. And kind of everyone keep doing what they're doing because, sure. you know, hey, I'm such and such age. I only got another, you know, 15, 20 years. Yep. Not my problem. Not right? my problem. That type of thing. At the same time, what you see is um, one of my favorite examples to give people is uh, every disruptor becomes the man. 
right? And uh, I think it's uh, Naval Ravikant uh, at one point, he made the, the comment that if Bill Gates was a teenager today, he'd be working on Bitcoin and crypto. Of course. Right? Yeah. Because at the time, working on Microsoft was the equivalent of working on Bitcoin, crypto, blockchain stuff today. And so he has gone from one of the kind of most fringe disruptor, I'm going to go and build this massive company and take on the incumbents, to now he is the man. Of course. And if you look across a bunch of these, that happens in entrepreneurship. It also happens in politics. And I think part of it is your example of like the in and out crowd. Mm -hmm. When people are out, and they want to get in, they're very disruptive. They're, they're very, exactly. kinda, hey, this is, this is what's going to happen. And it always cracks me up that once they get in, and it's both sides of the aisle, has nothing to do nothing with political politics, ideology, yeah. all of a sudden, the um, the vernacular, right, the, the way they articulate ideas, it all gets tempered. It, it kind of gets to this world, let's not rock the boat as much because now I'm in the crowd. Because now I might get kicked out, <laughs> right? It, it's, like, it's like why boards make bad investment decisions. Once yeah. I'm on the board, now, I just want to stay on the board. Mm -hmm. It's like in this group of people in this room, right? If I asked, what's the best restaurant in New York? The group will give me McDonald's. It if is I the ask best anybody individual, in America. I'll get a really good answer. Mm -hmm. But the group will say, well, I don't want to tell him about this Indian place I know because he might not like Indian and he might like American continental food, but I don't know, it's kind of spite. McDonald's. And it just gets dumbed down. And that's the same thing that happens in politics is it gets dumbed down back to this level of, I just want to stay here. And, but the real problem is, is um, our fra our, the framers set it up as a voluntary service. Two years, you went back and ran your family farm uh, and you couldn't be a lifelong politician. The problem is today, it's not voluntary, right? It costs you a hundred million dollars to become a senator. Mm -hmm. Not very many people have $100 million lying around. Meg Whitman tried, but most people have to raise money. So, well, if you raise $100 million, you're going to owe people stuff. Mm -hmm. And it turns out when you owe people stuff, you're malincented, misincented. Uh, I don't have a lot of opinions about politics, but the one idea, and I think I forget who, uh, who gets credit for this, but the one that I really, really agree with is uh, if you are elected as a representative, I don't care what part of government, what yep. ideology, you should not be allowed to participate in the legislation creation or editing of the industry that backed you to get there. Oh, amen. Amen. <laughs> so, yeah. so if the healthcare, you know, if the drug companies put you in, you can't talk about you can't, talk and about can't about participate in any legislation that has to do with drug companies, right? If it was the tobacco industry, if it was whatever, you, you just, what you start to do is you change the incentives, right? And, and you change the way that um, that, that things are, are, are kind of occurring. We're, we're running out of time, so we've got probably about 20 minutes or so. Oh my uh, gosh. I, I, want to talk on, I want to talk about two things. Uh, well, three things, because we have to talk about aliens as well. But uh, the first is real quick in like three minutes, talk about um, the fact that when you deposit money in a bank, it's not your money anymore. Ah, again, little known fact, right? People put their money in the bank and they're like, okay, that's my money. Uh, fact is, no, it's the bank's money. Look on the bank balance sheet, it shows up as their asset and you have an IOU from the bank. Now people say, but, but I can get it anytime I want. Well, yeah, you can, unless they lose it. Well, how could they lose it? Well, I'll give you an example. So I met a guy, his dad founded syndicated TV. He inherited almost a billion dollars, $960 million. And I said, where's your money? He said, it's in the bank. I'm like, what do you mean it's in the bank? He said, well, I don't want to lose it. 
like, but you could lose it really easily because it's not your money anymore. He says, no, no, it's insured. I said, well, it's insured up to 250K, um, but not 960 million. <laughs> Big delta between 960 million and 250. Yeah. And, and so make a long story short, he did diversify. He put it in four banks. And the sad part is in the global, finan- global financial crisis, one of the banks went bust. And he lost 25% of his money, minus the 250 he got back from insurance. And people just don't understand whether it's Cyprus, literally you wake up one morning and 75% of your money is gone mm. because they you know, take it because it's tax. a bail-in tax. Uh, um, one of my favorite terms ever, a bank levy, right? Yeah. Which for uh, an English format, all that means is they literally went in and said, we need to raise money really fast. Let's go to the banks and tell them, take 75, 50, 10%, whatever the number was per bank. Just take that money, call it a bank tax. And now we've got the money that we need to go do what we need. And look, I'm I'm not a bank hater in the sense that I actually believe fractional reserve banking is what separates the great countries from the less good countries, right? If, if you think about, if you can make a dollar work harder by you know fractional reserve lending it, it's a, it's a wonderful system, but it can be abused. And I think it has been abused. And, and I think you know the biggest problem is that we, we don't hold people accountable for their actions and we bail out the powerful instead of letting them fail. I mean, Iceland's a good example. They let their banks fail and they didn't go down the drain. There's, Iceland's still around last time I checked. Um, but this idea that that the money in the bank is not yours is a fundamental premise that people need to understand because everybody thinks about it as, no, I can go get it any time, but you can't. And it's like stock, right, in, in a brokerage account. It's not yours either. Like, what are you talking about? No, your paper stock certificate sits at DTCC, and then it's registered through a... Um, uh, a, a registration process with the broker, right? That that you you know work with, but you have an IOU from the broker for that particular stock certificate, and then you get a QCIP, the electronic version, but you don't have ownership of the asset, which can change with digital ownership. And, and this is all fine when things are going well. It's when things turn sour that that's where the issues. Of course. Uh, introduced, of course. Um, all right, Bitcoin. We've got almost two hours and haven't talked about That's Bitcoin crazy. at all. That's <laughs> crazy. Well, I, I don't do short well. So. That, that, that was my secret uh, goal. Um, you and I uh, and Jason have gone around the country uh, talking about this get off zero. Um, you, uh, unlike Jason and I, have sat on the other side of the table as a fiduciary, uh, managed these uh, endowments and really kind of thought through asset allocation, yep. et cetera. Uh, just spent a couple of minutes talking about how you think about Bitcoin, why it's interesting, um, and then how it fits into uh, some of these institutional investors' portfolio from a portfolio construction standpoint. Yeah, I mean, we, we talked earlier about um, this idea that that you got to focus on innovation. We talked about this idea that you know disruptive technology is is really important, and disruptors are important. And if I think back in my career as a as a fiduciary, you know, I've sat on boards, I've, I've managed portfolios uh, as a fiduciary, I built a business around being a fiduciary for, for clients. Uh, one of the things is I've always found myself hanging out with the fringe, with the disruptors. And you know, when I first brought the idea of hedge funds to Notre Dame, they're like, no, that's where all the bad people are. I know they're not bad people. They just make a lot of money because they're really talented. And uh, you know, then we, we wanted people to 
invest in distressed debt. And the board's like, oh, we can't do junk bonds. Like, oh, you do realize that the bulk of your, you know, investment is in equity, which is junior to, you know, subordinated debt in terms of claim on cash flows. Uh, so maybe it's okay if you own distressed debt, even though you want to call it junk. And so this idea that, that you want to go where the disruptors are, where the fringe is, has is, always been pretty important. And and people confuse this idea that, that that's not fiduciarily correct. Um, and it's only not fiduciarily correct because it's not accepted custom. If you go back to 60 years ago, the average endowment foundation didn't own stocks, right? It was all in fixed income. And then someone said, well, that's a really bad trade. Uh, and then in 1973, there was this idea that, hey, maybe we should think about international diversification. And ERISA came in and suddenly you could do international stocks and bonds. And so what, what seemed outlandish or crazy then becomes customary. And one of the things I, I talk about in this, this whole theme and we've talked about together, this, this get off zero is 10 years from now, you're going to look back and everyone's screaming today about how, oh, you can't invest in this because it's uh, you know, not fiduciarily proper or uh, it's, it's not a, an acceptable asset class or a customary uh, asset class. You're going to look back and say, oh my gosh, you are a bad fiduciary if you didn't invest in this. The same way that um, you know, today, if you don't have hedged assets in your portfolio, you're not a good fiduciary. If you don't have a diversified portfolio globally, you're not a good fiduciary. If you don't think about low correlation assets, you're not a good fiduciary. So all these ideas, you know, people forget the CAPM, capital asset pricing model, is only 75-year-old technology. You know, it's not like it's multiple hundreds of years old. So um, all these ideas about uh, bringing new technology and innovation and a new area of new areas of investment into the portfolio, um, what start out as radical end up as accepted. And the key again is being early. And, and taking advantage. And, and you think about, you know, why has Yale been great all these years or Notre Dame or Duke or UNC? It's because they're always out ahead. They're always putting the new asset classes, the new strategies into the portfolio before everybody else. Well, I think that, you know, look, when we first started really talking about this stuff, the, the one thing that you said to me that um, everyone knows, but no one understood, I think, is you have to talk to a fiduciary an institution in their language, right? Mm -hmm. And so where the Bitcoin community is racing around and screaming and yelling about, you know, it's going to be a new global reserve currency, um, you don't need a central bank, uh, oh, the dollar is screwed, right? All these things that there's a high probability are true, yeah, right? It's possible. Um, or, or definitely possible, yeah. right? And, and some people would argue it's, are, are it's, probable. It's, it's definitely possible and likely probable, yeah. Yeah. And, and so if you if you kind of say, okay, that's the way that you would speak to technologists, to other Bitcoiners, to, to people who are, are uh, looking for innovation and, and, um, and kind of the ideological revolution, mm -hmm. stuff like that. Institutional investors, all that language, they run so far so fast that it just scares the hell out of them. Oh, no, come on. I mean, look. So here I am. It's six years ago, 2013. Um, you know, one of the guys I backed uh, that came out of Julian's shop, Dan Moorhead, he found a firm called Pantera 13, 14 years ago. We were first money into his macro hedge fund. And 
Uh, six years ago, he calls up and says, hey, Mark, I'm, I'm shutting down the, the hedge fund and uh, I'm going to open up two funds in, in crypto, um, one in Bitcoin and, and one in infrastructure. I'm like, what, what are you talking about? And I had heard of Bitcoin. I would say I was neither uh, a drug dealer on Silk Road nor a cryptographic st- cryptography student, so I hadn't really gotten exposure. Um, but I kind of heard about it. And um, I went out and vet, met with him in San Francisco and you know, he went from a billion dollar fund to 15, one five million dollars raised for this this fund. And and I had the first of my many bad decisions in crypto is I could have gone to Bitcoin fund or the infrastructure fund. I'm a picks and shovels guy. I get picks and shovels. I get infrastructure. My like, good, Dan, let's do that. I should have gone to the Bitcoin fund, right? The picks and shovels fund up 10x. No one's complaining about 10x. Awesome. Great. But the Bitcoin fund's up 180x. That was better. So that's 2000, late 2013. Um, so my son's getting ready to graduate from, from Notre Dame. I send him out to meet with Dan. I go work at Coinbase or Zappo or something and just get in the industry and you know get in front of the trend. And, and he goes out and he meets with Dan of a couple companies and he comes back and says, yeah, dad, I, I, yeah, I'm not sure. I think I'm just going to go KPMG. And uh, it's safe. They'll get me to San Francisco where I want to be. And we got a chuckle out of it last uh, Thanksgiving. He's like, all right, fine, Dad, you were right. But you're not as smart as you think you are. I'm like, well, what do you mean? Uh, of course I'm smart. Right? What do you mean? He says, no, you didn't lever up the house and buy Bitcoin. I'm like, huh, good point. Um, <laughs> but here's the crazier thing. So first quarter 2015, you know, Bitcoin has dropped from a thousand bucks down to 500. And I wrote one paragraph in these crazy long quarterly letters that I used to write, um, you know, 40, 50, 60 pages, 41 page letter, one paragraph about Bitcoin as a special situation, thinking it's good investment. Okay. This first quarter 2015, $500. I had people call up and say, we'll fire you if you don't stop talking about this crazy stuff. Like, wow, that's an extreme reaction. And there was just fear. There was fear of this new technology, of this crazy magic internet money, you know, the bad guys and the Mt. Goxes and the, you know, Silk Roads and just stop talking about it. Now, it went from 500 to 175 bucks by September. I'm like, oh, maybe they're right. No, they weren't right. So then it zooms back to a thousand and now I'm back on it. I get some of our clients into it and I get some of our people excited about it. We do some more infrastructure and, we start thinking about maybe we should do something here and another year goes by and you know, still haven't done a lot, but we've got, we've got people invested. We've got a little bit, um, and then Ethereum comes along. We got a little bit of interest in that. Um, again, not as much as Novo and others, but, uh, we, we got people to, to kind of get off zero. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was interesting is, is I hadn't really had the big epiphany yet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you and I met, um, briefly, you know, 20 minutes in our conference room talking about Lyft uh, as a I private I couldn't believe investment. they let me in the office. Morgan Creek's got this nice office in Chapel Hill. I came in in a t-shirt and a baseball cap and I was like, I think that I might have underdressed for this one. Well, and, 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 and it was worse, right? Because you were that guy from California who had just left Snap and, and moved back home and and uh, kind of had the myth and legend of the Facebook time. And so there, there was just this kind of, yeah, it's just nice, nice to meet you, but but we didn't spend that much time because I didn't, I didn't get it yet. And, uh, you know, about maybe three or four months later, uh, you did actually, we're on a, doing a podcast. You did a podcast mm-hmm. with um, um, O'Shaughnessy. Oh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy. Yeah, Patrick O'Shaughnessy. And it wasn't even that long. It was like 25-minute podcast. Um, and, 
you know, O'Shaughnessy, uh, Patrick's a Notre Dame guy, Jim's a Notre Dame guy. And, and so I listened to the podcast. And I was like, huh, it's an interesting guy. Um, we need to meet. I go, wait, I did meet him. I was like, hey, give me his contact info. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I sent you, I think I sent you a direct message on Twitter because, you know, I started following you and it was, I said, like, 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 just weird. It's like everything coming out of your mouth is something I would have, would have said. And we got together for breakfast and, you know, my famous line, I'm not a morning person and, and you showed up early and you had your coffee and, and we got talking, then we had breakfast again the next day. And then a couple of days later, and it became very clear, very quickly that there was something here and it was something we needed to focus on together. Yeah. And I think part of it is, um, when you go and you talk to these institutions, right? And you told me that early on, hey, look, this is likely going to be a interesting but not interested type uh, relationship or, or conversation. And what I realized was in a number of those early conversations, I had the same experience that pretty much I think every fund manager in the space had where people just didn't get it. Mm-hmm. The second that you and I sat down and, and, and Jason and I really were like, hey, okay, well, what about this? What about this? What about that? You know, hey, this is why we were excited about it, whatever. You very quickly said, okay, don't use that word, right? Use this word. Hey, yep. don't talk about like, you know, taking down the financial system. Yeah. Maybe talk about like a non-correlated asymmetric asset. Yeah. Right? And, and, and you really learn that, oh, wait a second, you're saying the exact same thing. Yep. You're now saying it in a different language that resonates and kind of checks these mental boxes for an institutional investor. And when, when you do that, what you give them is less to worry about and yeah. you give them a much cleaner um, kind of uh, framework to evaluate the opportunity. Yep. And I joke all the time and I say the idea of a non-correlated asymmetric asset to 99% of people in the world means nothing. Mm-hmm. When you show that with data to an institutional investor, they have to pay attention. Have to. Right? Yep. And they'll argue with you the qualitative nature, if it's sustainable, you know, all these kind of nuances. But just that one thing it is this trigger that kind of flips them over yeah. from I'm not interested to I have to be interested. Yeah. Let's see what happens. Well, you're, you're exactly right. And and again, it's it's why we've been great partners uh, as we feed off each other and the ideas. And and to your point, you know, back to my first mistake with my board, right? 40 recommendations. No, 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 no. These were observations. Don't threaten them. So don't go in to an institution saying, hey, this thing's going to take down the financial system because, oh, by the way, 100% of my assets are in the financial system. I don't, I don't want to hear that. So what I do want to hear is, okay, technology has progressed. And I, this is something that you know, became very clear for me. It was like this aha moment, this eureka moment that you know, I've been investing in this technology cycle, 54 mainframes, 68 microchip, 82 personal computer, 96 internet, 2010 mobile net, and now 2024, the trust net, my term, use it frequently. But people want to call it the internet of value or the internet of things or whatever it is, or the blockchain era. But it became very clear that that as DOS was to operating system for PCs, iOS and Android are the operating system for handhelds, and now we're gonna have this operating system for the internet of value, and that is gonna be blockchain technology. And I did have this epiphany moment, I even wrote about it you know, from Eureka, California, that I had this Eureka moment, and I was like, oh my gosh, we have to do this together, and we have to build. and. And you have to do it because it's way better coming from you is, you know, you 
very successful guy, lots of background, and I, he, it's amazing. I had all these questions I was going to ask you, and I didn't do any of it. <laughs> um, but give me the, 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 do give the story of why did you and, and Jason decide to partner with us? You know, stodgy state institutional yeah. firm. I, I always use the example of like a Venn diagram, right? Which was, um, we had, Jason and I had been investing um, in kind of a micro VC mm -hmm. style uh, into a bunch of these companies. Um, kind of started out, eh, are we good at this? Okay, we might be good at this. Okay, I think that actually we can go find a lot of these deals. Um, let's go raise more money. The institutional world's interesting. Uh, you and I started talking. Uh, I always joke with Jason and said, uh, I tricked Mark because Mark was learning from me about crypto. He didn't realize I was learning about the institutional world. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a good trick, good but, trick. But I think that in those conversations, what became very obvious was uh, we had talked to a bunch of people in kind of the institutional asset management world, and they were all bankers, right? And I use bankers as like kind of a, 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 a banner title that is not a negative title. It's just a, yeah. um, they come from the traditional financial world. They're trained in the traditional financial world. That's how they think. That's how they act. That's who they surround themselves with. And it's a, a very specific uh, mindset. On the other side, you have all the crypto folks, right? All the Bitcoin folks who are just hardcore, you know, decentralized yep. the world. This is new technology, very innovative, very disruptive, et cetera. And when you bring together those two separate buckets of people in the kind of a Venn diagram, the overlap, it's actually a really, really small set of people who come from the institutional asset management world, understand kind of traditional finance markets, uh, asset allocation, portfolio construction, and also understand innovation, disruption, right technology, mm -hmm. et cetera. Obviously, you, you've been talking about a lot of those things today. And so uh, in that bucket, uh, there was even a smaller group, literally one, which was you uh, and Morgan Creek, that I think aligned with us in terms of uh, you're not a trader, right? Mm -hmm. You're not going to go out and, and hedge fund and uh, in the sense of um, let's go pick stocks and and you know trade. Uh, you're not going to um, just long passive index, right? right. Um, th there's a very specific kind of equity, uh, you know, bent or, or, or uh, bias um, and more venture capital, private equity type yep. uh, infrastructure, et cetera. And so, you know, very early on, I remember having two specific investment thesis, which was, hey, Bitcoin's interesting as this idea of an uh, algorithm is going to store value uh, for people. I, you know, um, I can, I've said this on the podcast a million times, and now that Mark's here, I can say it, and I'll say it when uh, Jason's here as well. Uh, I'm 31, Jason's mid-40s, you're mid-50s, and when you put that together, it becomes a really interesting collection of experiences and, and perspectives, uh, because I can sit there and say, trust me, there's a whole group of people like me mm -hmm. who are going to trust this algorithm to, mm -hmm. to secure their value, right? Mm -hmm. Their wealth. And while that's weird to, you know, somebody who's sitting there saying, look, I've been doing this for 30 years and there's no freaking way that somebody's not going to put their money in a bank. <laughs> and then they say, oh, hold on a minute. Actually, there's a lot of people like a lot this, of people. right? Um, I think that that's a, a really kind of beneficial thing. And the second thing was this, every stock bond currency and commodity was going to get digitized. And I think that, you know, the kind of the historical perspective of the shifts already happened before from the analog to the electronic world, yep. Yep. electronic digital, it just made a lot of sense of there was things that you guys brought to the table that we had no clue about. Not, not even that we couldn't do, just we had no clue about. And I think vice versa, there was things that we brought to the table that you guys were like, look, we kind of heard about it, but, you know, help accelerate this no, and, and bring I mean, that together. you make about... Um, youth and and aged you know look you get wise as you get older 
right? Just because you made mistakes and you survive. It's like it's like the firefighter who says, you know, they have, he has a sixth sense. No, he just fell through a lot of floors and didn't die. So now he knows to touch the door and before he goes in and he's got he's wise. And so but with with that wisdom becomes this intransience uh, about, oh, no, no one would not have a bank account or a brokerage account. Well, geez, I know people who don't have either of those and have 80 plus percent of their assets in crypto. And actually, when I think about it, that's actually not illogical given where we're headed. And so what was great for me was, was again, that epiphany of saying, um, you know, one plus one plus one is five or 10 or, or more as as the three of us together created this this uh, asymmetric upside potential in terms of, of building a new venture that took all of the benefit and all the wisdom and all the experience and all the relationships and all the knowledge that we had for 15 years at Morgan Creek to then kind of lasso this shooting star that uh, we want to ride along with uh, that is going to be this new asset class and this this new uh, fiduciary standard or the Bitcoin standard that's coming. And, and you know, I said the, uh, the interesting thing for me was um, also there's a... If you go back in history, all of the great intellectual and technological innovations come from young people, right? Mark Andreessen was not a 55-year-old guy when he invented the browser. Um, he's doing great stuff now, too, as an older guy, but but the youth is, is you know, uh, where this comes from. And you know, I said Bill Gates, you know, he got mistaken as the coffee boy by IBM, right? IBM passed on Microsoft the first time because they thought he was the coffee boy. He's better than coffee boy. But... Uh, youth is is really where it's at, and and the the most I've had more fun in the last two years than I probably had in the last twenty. One because I get to hang out with young people who are enthusiastic and 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 really doing interesting things, and and while I can't keep up the pace, right? I used to think I worked hard until I started you know working out with you, and you know I I love the fact that I I am reverse aging. Uh, I'm, I'm becoming less rigid in things that I thought were absolutely true. And I'm going back to that wonder I had. Look, when I was 34-year-old as a CIO of, of a university, and people were like, what the hell? You, how'd you get that job? And it goes back, again, I pick on my board chair um, from UNC, but he was actually an amazing guy, and he was very successful. And uh, he had a great line when I asked him. I said, you know, why, why did why'd you pick me? He says, I'd never hire anybody over 35. <laughs> I was like, why not? And he says, oh, because the way it works in this world is your 20s are for getting educated, your 30s are for building your reputation, your 40s are for capitalizing on your reputation, your 50s and 60s are for enjoying your reputation. And so by 35, you don't want to work hard. And I need people to work hard. I'm like, wow, that, that's really interesting. And there is this, this sense of wonder, this sense of, of, of potential achievement and, and motivation. And, and I feel like I've, I've re, got reinvigorated uh, and, and have it again. So I, I, I clearly am not 35 again, but, but I, I feel like it. Plus, I have an eight-year-old to prove it. Um, so uh, I think that combination of youthful enthusiasm and a sense of understanding of, of uh, that generational shift, uh, along with a business builder like Jason, who you'll talk about on the, on the next pod, and, and my experience in, in, in building an asset management business comes together uh, to do something really special. I agree. I'm biased, uh, but I agree. You're biased, yeah. That's <laughs> Aliens, real or not? Uh, um, 
the concept of aliens definitely real. Okay. The idea that that we're alone in this in this you know series of universes impossible. Um, the idea that aliens have visited this planet, I'm not there. I think the, the I'll agree with that. I, I my thing is that. Um, like the last the last week, I've been laying in my backyard, staring up at the sky, trying to find the Perseids, and it just ticks me off that we had a full moon right at the meteor shower peak, so I couldn't see as many as I wanted to. But when you're sitting up looking at the stars, it it it's kind of you know, again it fills you with a sense of wonder. And and when you when you look at at um, you know one of the sky apps on your on your phone, and you see just the gazillions of stars and and universes, and you think. No way we could be alone. So mathematically, you know, combination of, of things you need for life. But I think it would take a different form and a different format. But the idea that, that you know, little green men have landed on this in Area 51 or stored there, I, I'm not there. Don't buy it. I, I think that that is probably the most uh, intellectually sound way that people look at it is life probably exists somewhere yeah. uh, from a mathematical basis. Um, they probably, it doesn't probably look and, you know, act the way that we see it in movies. Yeah. Uh, and if it's anywhere, it's like in an Area 51 type thing, but uh, unlikely that... Uh, yeah, I mean, my, my thing is it's, it's space travel is just too hard. Yeah. Right? The idea, I mean, someone had a great line um, yesterday that I saw on Twitter. It said, uh, if there were a planet that was 51 million light years away, and I don't know why they picked that number, uh, and they could actually see here, they'd see dinosaurs. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, yeah. that puts it in perspective that, you know, Star Trek, like I, I had, you know, one of my Twitter moments was, you know, William Shatner added me. And I'm like, wow, that's kind of cool. Because I grew up, you know, watching the guy. Yep. And the idea of Star Trek, you know, going from planet to planet, no. It's just not happening. Colonizing Mars, not happening. Just, just not happening. <laughs> we won't go there. Uh, That's where I hold on. You've actually been pretty good, not not letting me go down the Tesla rabbit for, hole. For uh, uh, I'll let you ask me the one question to end this, but just for the record, Mark is a uh, is a Tesla bear, and I have a Tesla bull, and we have a very uh, spirited debate. Spirited, it's good. <laughs> um, all right, what, if two one people always have the same opinion, one is unnecessary. Very true. What uh, what one question do you have for me? I told you you're only going to get one question this whole time. <laughs> Uh, I have so many, uh, but but the the one is um, you know, one of the things I, I really admire uh, about you is is your your uh, commitment uh, to everything you do. I mean, you are you are all in hundred percent of the time, um, and you know, one of the things that had to be just devastating in some ways and and challenging in others um, was. You know, basically being disrupted in the middle of college to uh, go off to the army. Um, but what was the one thing you took away from that experience? So uh, the all-in thing. There's a saying uh, as kids, we, uh, my brothers and I, and then uh, a number of our friends used to joke about. But there's, you know, in every great joke, there's a hint of truth type mm -hmm. thing. Um, is uh, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. Mm. And now we used to use Love it as kids of like, oh, well, if it's worth eating ice cream, just eat the whole bucket, right? Um, and, and you can imagine all Guilty. the ways you could apply that as a kid to basically piss off your parents. Um, but but I do think that, that there's a lot of truth in that and, and things in life. Uh, and if you use that as a um, filter, you start to change some of the things that are worth doing, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
And so when I went to uh, Iraq, I'd signed up basically for like this reserve contract and then I'd know mm-hmm. some time after uh, college. Uh, I'm a junior. Uh, I had known that it was a possibility, but very small. Uh, they call and like, I'd kind of not paid attention. So it was like, oh, if I don't pay attention to the possibility, then Absolutely. it won't come it to can't fruition. Absolutely, happen, right? It's like the ostrich turning his back on the lion. Yeah. And so all of a sudden they said, hey, in one week you have to report. And I was like, oh, this like real. That's true. <laughs> um, and so I went and for me, I was 20 and I was joking, say I went to basic training when I was 17. Uh, they were yelling and screaming at me. Anyone that was like over the age of like, I don't know, 25, they had enough self-respect to realize like, why are you treating me like this? At 17, I was like, oh, you're nicer to me than like the football coach was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so you're kind of just in your that time of your life, you're used to everyone yelling. Your parents yeah, yell at you, exactly. your coaches yell at you, your teachers yell at you. It's all whatever. Um, when I went at 20, uh, I was too dumb to realize how dangerous it was because you kind of think like you're Superman, yeah. right? It's just like, yeah. oh, like this is going to be fun, um, which is really weird now. You look back, you know, literally it's uh, 11 years later and I'm like, whoa, like that was yeah. pretty crazy. But the other piece of it was uh, I was there with a bunch of older guys. So mm-hmm. um, I think that like the average age was like 28 or something, which was very uncommon. So this isn't um, kind of the active army. This was a, a reserve unit. Yep. So the guys are a little bit older. Uh, they've been in for longer. And uh, it was weird at first to go from like the 20 year old playing football in college and like what's the party on Friday night, you know, or Saturday night after the game to the dude who's sleeping next to me literally like six inches away on a cot is talking about his mortgage yeah. or his kids at home, right? Yep. Or whatever. And what you realize is like, you just get this crash course. And uh, when I came back is when I noticed the the big difference because all of a sudden the things I'd cared about before I went really didn't matter, right? Yep. It's like, where's the party? I, I got other things yep, to do. Yep, got other things thing, to do. Right? But what it taught me was uh, the idea that like the people you surround yourself with you very quickly adapt to and, and, and kind of your mindset changes to that. And it wasn't so much like, oh, they were great investors or entrepreneurs mm-hmm. or you know anything that like the business world cares about. It was the fact that they had really, these guys were from like the backwoods of Pennsylvania. Yep. They had good values. Had real lives, yep. and there was no kind of like you know. Uh, Travis came on the podcast one time. He used the word fuckery, right? It was just like this is life, yep. right? And and so when you're surrounded with that for a year, you kind of grow up pretty quickly, and you realize like, hey, there's a pretty clear line here of like the things that matter, the things that don't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I came back all the, like everything changed, right? So it yep. was very much for me, uh, an accelerated, I grew up, yes, it was a dangerous situation, but when you get back and you kind of survive that, now all of a sudden you're like, hey man, it's like a new lease on life type thing. Yep. So you hear you know, people who go to jail, people who are in these near life dis, uh, you know, situation or near death dis, uh, situations, yep. they all kind of have the same takeaway of just like, just live life to the fullest or kind of anything worth doing. Yeah, worth, but I, I think the real, the real thing for me in listening to you, give that answer is is the who you surround yourself with and and I talk about this all the time is look at the five people you spend the most time with that is who you'll become choose Absolutely. wisely choose wisely and I, I think that's why why choosing your partners is important why choosing your associates is important your spouse your significant other uh, all those things are, are critically important and uh it's a great Look, takeaway. I, I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't agree with it more. And I think that it's uh, people know that it's really, really hard to execute until they get in the situation. And yeah. then when you get in the situation, um, you know, the, the thing I'll leave everyone with is uh, when Jason, myself and Mark decided to work together, uh, I remember we walked out of uh, the Morgan Creek offices and I said, what'd you think? And he literally said to me, he goes, 
we just jumped from high school to the pros. <laughs> <laughs> and I always remind myself of, you know, there's an element of you're forced to raise your level of effort, your level yeah. of your game, et cetera, when you surround yourself with that. And so it's yep. the same reason, you know, why do all these NBA guys that are stars, their kids end yep. up being really good at basketball? Well, because they're playing with NBA players every day. Yeah, yeah. Kind of accelerates the things that you do. So, Amen. so uh, it's been well, a Well, and, and to that point, and, and I know we're running out of time, but uh, you didn't ask, and, and but I, I do want to talk about it real quickly, is uh, most important book. And, you know, it's such a tough question and I was joked that you know my wife reads more books in a month than I read my whole life <laughs> so I don't read many books I read so much for work and, and yep. stuff that I just don't read books but the one book that I that I have read that I do think is a life changer and it it has a little bit to do with why we're together and, and doing this is The Alchemist um, and what it talks about is this idea of a personal legend and you know knowing what your destiny is and, and pursuing it and and a friend gave it to me at the right time um, you know things happen for a reason of course and I read it at the right time and it was just all the things that, that went into it and and there's there's a line in there that I love which is you know if you if you really wish for something if you really want something to happen the universe will conspire to make it so and and I think this is a great example of that that uh, I I knew I was interested in blockchain and Bitcoin and, and crypto, and, and I knew there was something there. But the universe had to conspire to bring you and I together and then to bring Jason in to 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 give us the opportunity to create Morgan Creek Digital and and to change our business model, right? From from fund to funds to direct investment, from uh, manager managers and public markets to really focusing on venture capital and innovation and to, to get me to to kind of revert back to my entrepreneurial, let's build this. Uh, and 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 also um, in that conspiring, it's it's getting you guys to conspire against me in, in a positive way of saying, hey, you know, let's sharpen the edge and let's, you know, let's not focus on stuff that isn't as important or can't make as much a difference and let's focus on what's really important. And, and that's been good. And so, whereas a book people think can't make a big difference sometimes, but in, in many ways, that single book or that single idea can can make a huge difference. And then and then one throw into best investment book is a book called the Dow Jones Averages. And Dow is spelled T-A-O. And it's a mixing of ancient Chinese philosophy and investing. Ah. And what it talks about is most investors are too left-brained, you know, right-handed, analytical, backward-looking, uh, and, and the best investors are whole-brained, and they have to have that creative side and that ability to see things differently, and there's a whole part about, you know, why women are better investors. It's called women intuition for, for a reason, and you know, I was listening to your your pod the other day um, with Scaramucci, and I was listening to the one with Novogratz, and, and you know, one thing that they talk about a lot is this idea of in a, intuition and trusting that intuition and, and my intuition um, on you, on Jason, on this opportunity, on morphing Morgan Creek and, and you know, in Taoist philosophy, you know, water, a creek, Morgan Creek, it, it, it comes to the obstacle, it goes around it, it shapes the obstacle. And I think, I think that's where we are in this, in this journey, in this alchemist type journey. 
I think there were going to be more right than wrong. So uh, we'll see how this plays out. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. This is the, officially the longest podcast we've ever recorded, uh. which I, I appreciate you taking so much time to do this. Uh, hopefully everyone listening to this uh, really enjoys it. And uh, we will uh, we'll have to do it again in the future when we've got more stuff to talk about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so much fun. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. Pop here. If you like this episode of Off The Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.